Hello and welcome to Media Made, the show in which we, year by year, explore the movies, music, and TV that most invaded our lives. I'm your host, One Bad Apple, Rod, and I'm joined by... Blackberry Jam, Jess. Woo! It's 1991. Wait, sorry, sorry. let me try that again. Blackberry Jam! <laughs> Please keep both of those Oh my in. goodness. Oh my... <laughs> That hurt my ears. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry to the editing version of us doing oh. this. Hey, welcome to Media Made. If you can still hear after that, um, hi. Good to have you here. Hello. All right, so if you're new to the show, here's what we do. We Every episode, we have a different type of media. Today's episode is music. Music. And we have picked a year. The year is 1991. We have looked at every single music album released in 1991 and decided which one each of us had listened to the most in our lives and the ones that won we're going to talk about today and if you listen to our 1987 music episode this is sort of a sequel to that one yeah <laughs> um i think a spiritual sequel yeah like the two albums today aren't as big as the two from 87 on a mainstream level but I think in some ways they show the growth of, of these acts, of these mm -hmm. musicians. Um, in other ways, you know, these are almost like sleeper hits, you know. Yeah. Diamonds in the rough. Not rough. They're underappreciated oh, okay. in some They're ways. not as appreciated as the other, the bigger, the al albums that preceded them. Yeah, I think so. They, they definitely tell a tale of the early 90s. Mm. But yeah, so... I think with that, we're going to jump into my album of 1991. So, what was that? I don't remember it. Did we listen to an album for you? We did. <laughs> Released September 17th, 1991, part one of their historic hard rock double album release, we have Use Your Illusion 1 by Guns N' Roses. You were young and I'm sorry, I think you accidentally put on Rocket Man. <laughs> it's, it's a cover. <laughs> I did, in fact, know. Alright, so if you've most likely heard that, if you've heard any of the songs from this album, I was waffling on whether or not to play that song. I kind of wanted to introduce the segment with a different song, but mm. I was like, listen, this song is arguably the most popular from this album, so mm. I might as well get it out of the way, because we're not going to talk about it later. That is no. Live and Let Die by Guns N' Roses. It is a cover of a Paul McCartney and Wings song from the James Bond film Live and Let Die. And wow. Yes, it is probably the, of all of the songs on this album, this is the one they play on the radio the most, so okay. we might as well get it out of the way. But yeah, this is Use Your Illusion, part one, by Guns N' Roses. Nice. What are we using our illusion for? I don't know. I don't know what it means. <laughs> there are, There is one song each in both Use Your Illusion albums that have the lyric, Use Your Illusion. And Does context give us anything? You know, actually, now that I think about it, we didn't even like... That could have been a song we talked about. The song from Use Your Illusion 1 that has the lyric, Use Your Illusion, but... We're not. Uh, Do your own research, folks. Oh, well. <laughs> Go listen to it yourself. Or don't. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Use your illusion one. Um, this was 
we I talked about my history with Guns N' Roses in our 1987 episode. Um, I remember that. I listened to that episode. Yep. Once, <laughs> once I got into Guns N' Roses, right? Like, I started hearing the radio hits. Like, I heard Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. I heard um, Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City. Right? You hear all the radio hits. Right. And I'm like, cool. I like all of these songs. Therefore, Guns N' Roses is my favorite band. <laughs> of course. So, yeah. Law of Averages. <laughs> yeah. Makes that perfect sense. So... Christmas 2007, I think. I was in college. Cool. <laughs> I was in high school. <laughs> it's Christmas time 2007. My parents bought me my first MP3 player. And they bought me two CDs oh. for my, to, to rip and put on my MP3 player. It wasn't even an iPod. It was like this <laughs> crappy Sanyo whatever. <laughs> what? This thing died in like... Zoom for life. This thing died within six months, by the way. Yeah, that makes sense. But they bought me two CDs. One was ACDC, a live album. Mm-hmm. And number two was Guns N' Roses, Greatest Hits. Ah. And that Greatest Hits album introduced me to a lot of songs from the Use Your Illusion albums that I had never heard before. Because they don't get radio play. Correct. You know, like Civil War and Don't Cry and so on, so on, so on. Um, so a lot of the songs from Use Your Illusion I actually heard first on this uh, greatest Hits CD. Mm. And then from there, as I started building my collection, I actually got the full releases. I got all the songs right. and, and really dug into them. Um, so there are two of them released the same day. Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. We're listening to one, even though Use Your Illusion 2 is my... I like better okay. than Use Your Illusion 1. But we're listening to Use Your Illusion 1 for one reason Wait. and one reason only. And that reason is the song, My World, which closes Use Your Illusion 2. This is what it sounds like. You want to step into my world. It's so Her face is disturbed. Disturbed is a band that sounds better than this. Also, this is giving me war flashbacks to those Jersey boys. You want to talk to me? No. This feels right. too much like Beastie Boys. I don't like it. <laughs> okay. I, I cut that out. All right. So <laughs> Axl Rose secretly, like, stealth included that song at the end of User Illusion 2 as a joke. <laughs> and it sucks. <laughs> that song is terrible. It's, it's, like, unlistenable. I don't want that on my phone. I don't want to, like, hear it in the car. Like, it's just, like, get it out of there. I don't so want I, it to accidentally pop up. So I removed it from my iTunes and my iPod. You know, just get it out of there. I will do that right now. Real time. Delete. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so, yes, because my world is consistently off my iPod, I don't listen to the whole Use Your Illusion 2 album. So Use Your Illusion 1 was the album that won. Well, that makes sense. Actual law of averages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You, I don't, you, have you heard any of these songs no. before no. this project? No. So these, these are Guns N' Roses songs you were not familiar Correct. with. Correct. Got it. So this is new to Jess. Yes. Brand new. Brand new is a band that we'll listen to in a couple years. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're going to pick up the history of Guns N' Roses from our 1987 episode when they released uh, Appetite for Destruction. Mm-hmm. And, uh. Let's see where they've been. Where have they been? They've been clean, hopefully. They haven't been to uh, Brownstones. Some of them have. (laughs) 
As we discussed in our 1987 music episode, hard rock band Guns N' Roses released their debut album, Appetite for Destruction, to a strong to strong reviews and strong sales. They revolutionized rock and roll. That was my thesis of that episode. By the end of 1988, as the band led an extensive world tour, Appetite is... Appetite for Destruction topped the Billboard charts, and the band, the band was considered one of the biggest rock acts in the world. Okay. Yep. Funny story. Guns N' Roses opened for Aerosmith on some legs of that tour, who they ended up upstaging almost every night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, according to Aerosmith's manager, quote, by the end of the tour, Guns N' Roses were huge. They basically just exploded. We were all pissed that Rolling Stone magazine showed up to do a story on Aerosmith, but Guns N' Roses ended up... On the cover of the magazine. <laughs> Suddenly, the opening act was bigger than we were. Ooh. Yeah. I bet that'd be very upsetting. Um, the band released their EP GNR Lies in 1988, which also sold well. But by that point, the band, was, the band could not escape controversy and media scrutiny. We talked about just the hijinks that right. Axl Rose and the boys got on. Ending shows early. Not showing up. Showing up late. Um, yeah, I remember being very angry and saying that you could not be friends with him, banning him from our fan friend group. Starting starting fights. With uh, fans. With fans, jumping in the crowd and beating fans up. Starting riots. Um, illegal activity, drug issues. Um, Axel wrote songs that some considered racist and homophobic. Sex in a sound booth. A lot of, lot of bad stuff going on, <laughs> which culminated in the band earning the moniker the most dangerous band in the world. I bet they loved that. They reveled in it, didn't Oh, yeah. They? I bet you it was on every, uh, like, poster, every, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, preview, the radio. Um, one chief issue with the band, though, was drummer Steven Adler's drug problem mm. as he struggled with a cocaine and a heroin addiction. Um, they were all, for the most part, doing drugs, but Adler was out of control. After proving unable to perform once the band entered the studio in 1990, Adler was officially fired. Mm. So he contributed, I think, to only one song on Use Your Illusion 1, and that's it. Okay. He wouldn't reunite with the band proper until a few surprise appearances in 2016. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. That's a long time. Did he at least get clean or sober? Or? He, is, he is still alive and still fighting. Okay. I, I, let's say that. You know. I mean, addiction is a thing you fight yeah, your whole life. It, it, addiction it's not is a powerful like, thing. I'm yeah. over it. Yeah. You're so, an addict for your whole life, even if you're clean. Thoughts and prayers to Steven Adler. Yeah. Uh, he's a fighter. I hope I hope he's doing well these days, but he has been with the band a few times, so that's mm, good. That's yeah. good. And uh, he was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's good. Yeah. Matt Sorum, who had played briefly with the band of the cult, was brought in to repra- replace Adler. And keyboardist Dizzy Reed joined the band shortly thereafter. Therefore, the six-man group that performed on Use Your Illusion was thus comprised of singer Axl Rose, lead guitarist Slash, rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin, bassist Duff McKagan, drummer Matt Sorum, and keyboardist Dizzy Reed. All right. Was that six? Six. Okay. All, I counted five. <laughs> all silly names. <laughs> Axl, Dizzy, Izzy, Duff, and Matt. <laughs> and Slash. <laughs> and Slash. And in true GNR fashion, recording Use Your Illusion proved difficult. Okay, not surprising. Also, can I move to call all of our friends who are named Matt Dizzy now, just because? No. Matt is a different guy. There's I Matt, know. Matt and Dizzy. I know, but I just want to now call all of our Matts Dizzy. Okay. 
so that they can fit in with the band. According to a 1991 article by Rolling Stone, the band, after already mixing 21 tracks with engineer Bob Clearmountain, decided to scrap everything and start from scratch with engineer Bill, Bill Price of the Sex Pistols. Okay, why? Quote, if Axel liked the mix, Slash didn't. Price recalled. <laughs> and if Slash liked it, Axel didn't. They still hadn't finished the record when their massive 18-month world tour started, so the last half dozen songs were recorded at, at random studios across the uh, the United States on days off between gigs. That sounds like a lot of work. Yep, and we've talked about Axel Rose being a noted perfectionist. Yeah. So I'm sure that wasn't helping. No. Um, yeah, it was, it was a wild time. Ooh. Wild time in the time of cholera. And as we'll talk, as we'll talk about, I think the creative direction of like you know Axel and Slash are kind of seen as the two leaders of the band, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the boys besides Dizzy Reed uh, were kind of on Slash's side, so Mm -hmm. it was kind of like the the Slash camp and the Axel camp, right? And those two camps, I think, had different uh, ideas of where the band should go musically, creatively, Um, and we'll, we'll we'll see that. As we talk about four songs today. Yeah. um, Why does Axel have so much pull? I mean, his name is in the band, but... Uh, I think just because he was the front man. Mm. And I think because he was in the limelight, you know? Lame. Yeah. But... Lame. I get it. Continue. I'm sure it was very frustrating to work with that man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why Slash moonlit on a lot of stuff. This is true, including <laughs> another album we'll talk about today. <laughs> hey, well, let's break into this album. All right, let's break it. <laughs> Literally, we're going to talk about break stuff, breaking stuff. All right, so we're going to open up. I wanted to, because we're actually going to cover, like, some musical ground that's kind of different from other Guns N' Roses stuff, you know, mm-hmm. we talked about, like, stuff that's a little bit more melodic and fanciful. <laughs> I don't fanciful. Know. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I don't know. Grand... I guess grandiose. Yeah, something so, something that you wouldn't consider gritty hard rock. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to ease people in, and I want if you're familiar with Guns and Roses of Appetite for Destruction, I wanted to introduce a song that carried on the legacy, the tradition of like the Wild West days of early Guns and Roses, where mm-hmm. they were, you know, when they were the most when, dangerous band in the game. You got it. So we're gonna open up with the opening song of the album. Right next door to hell. Got that slash riff. We're going to come in and the band's going to be angry and pulsing and rock driven just like they were in the late 80s. Pulsing and rocking, just like <laughs> <laughs> thrusting. All right, so um, you listen to this song. I think this is probably the first time you've ever heard the song. Any thoughts on it before I go into a little bit of the background, the writing? I okay. I know I've listened to it before, and I listened to it again. I can't remember it. <laughs> I can remember lyrics because I read them. <laughs> I don't blame you. I was going to save this for the end, but there's a lot of filler on this album. Mm. A lot of filler, including this song. Like, 
This song is only memorable because of the backstory of it. But go ahead. I, I want to hear if you have any thoughts on the lyrics. Um, just, my brain says, this album is a whole season of Bleach. This album is the Frieza saga. Is this too long? <laughs> it, it's a lot of filler. <laughs> mm, that's fair. Um, okay, I think this song overall i mean there were like some like lines that stood out to me you want me to talk about that now yeah okay they've got a line in the around the first verse where it's this side of heaven is close to hell i just really like i thought that was a really fun like i stayed on that line for probably like a full 30 seconds like wow what does that look like what does that mean um because i just like how it's written and i'll come back to that and then but I will say by the time I got to the end, I have one note at the end that just said, because the last line is, can't, can you tell me what this means, huh? And I was like, I cannot. No, sorry. Nah. Because even though like this whole, as a whole, right? Like it's an interesting song with what they're saying, but I'm also like, but what are you saying? I think there were some moments though, where just like that made me think they're talking about like where they live, right? Right next door to hell, obviously. And I was, it made me immediately think of like, some of the places that we've lived with neighbors that maybe are not the best. Yes, and like yes. this side of heaven, because I love living with you, Fever roommate. You are a piece of heaven. Next door. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not far off from the inspiration of this song. I figured, and I also would just like to say if our neighbors or current neighbors ever listen to it, they are lovely people. I love them. They're lovely people. Past uh, neighbors. Correct. <laughs> Okay, so um, before I get into the real inspiration of the song, I think conceptually, and like I think sometimes with songs, like the words aren't as important as like the feeling it conveys, mm -hmm. right? With this song, it's a hard rock song. It's you know got that driving riff and it's aggressive. It sounds like the stuff you would hear on Appetite for Destruction back right. in '87. Um, so I think the song at its core, is trying to express aggressiveness, mm -hmm. angst, anger, right? And, like, it's trying to present the rock and roll lifestyle just like they were doing, you know, six years before, four years before or whatever. Right. Right? So, right next door to hell, I think, can also mean, like, what it's like to live like a rock star, right? You're constantly, like, on edge, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're constantly on the, the outs with the law, with common uh, decency, with the media, right? Like, when you're a rock star, you're always right next door to hell. Mm -hmm. You know, what, even your own demons, right? Yeah. They're always front and center. So that's what it kind of presents to me, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes total sense. It's, um, I, and I think that that's the thing. Like, when I was reading it, there are some lines that are just like, yeah, it makes me think legitimately right next door like we're talking about our neighborhood but there are also lines that are just kind of like at any point in another song that we'll talk about does this uh even better but like at every point right you've got to just like look at where you're at in this moment and just be like where what where am i and sometimes right. it is i think even it just starts off right like i know they were into drugs <laughs> yep. but just the just even the first couple of lines right I'll, I'll take a nicotine caffeine sugar fix jesus don't you get tired of turning tricks uh but when your innocent dies you'll find the blues seems like all your heroes are born to lose and it that almost is more than just like um a a presence but like a state of mind you know yes. where you're just kind of like 
So, you know, like, we all get there. We're all adults. Hopefully there are only adults listening to this. <laughs> and at every point in our, at different points in our lives, we've probably, like, been at this place where, we're like, I'm, like, one door over from actual hell. Yeah. It's like, it, it, they're one step from destruction, almost, you mm. know? Like, that's their that's appetite. their life. Hey. <laughs> um, so let me tell you where this song actually came from. Aww. So the song was inspired by a dispute between Axl Rose and his West Hollywood high-rise neighbor, Gabriella Cantor. Okay. His real neighbor. Got it. <laughs> um, after an incident in October 1990, Cantor accused Rose of um, assaulting her with a wine bottle and a piece of chicken before throwing her apartment keys over his 12-story balcony. I don't know how you can assault someone with a chicken, but that's what she... Just make me mad enough, honey. That's what she alleged. Um, Rose was arrested, spent four hours in prison, and she sued him. Hmm. Um, he denied all of the charges and simply labeled her a fanatical fan, saying, quote, If I was going to hit her with a wine bottle, she wouldn't have gotten, uh, she wouldn't have gotten up. <laughs> I would have become a criminal at that point, wondering what I was going to do next to, get, to not get busted over the quivering body in my hallway. Oh, wow. I was like, man, that's hardcore. Well, um, ultimately, the courts sided with Rose, dismissing the case in November and declining to prostitute, prosecute due to lack of evidence. So mm. he said she said uh, he was not charged with anything. And I guess uh, <laughs> this song was written about her. Well. And the song ends with, you know, quite the, the statement to Miss Cantor. Uh, yeah. Right here. This is the longest FU, by the way. He's still going. Still going. He's just saying you. You can hear his, his voice give out as he continues to curse at this woman. And then he ends it with the B word. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, man. They were. Qu- she, he was angry. Yeah. Um, I spent four hours in jail. Uh, the condo in question, by the way, was eventually given away in an MTV contest called Evict Axel. <laughs> I guess MTV gave away the condo in a, in a party at the condo or something. What? Did he say you can have my place? Yeah, Ooh. he was in on it. Um, uh. Like, you could see, they're, they're, the promos are still on YouTube. Oh, wow. Evict Axel. Fun. He must have had another place lined up, yeah. I guess. I mean, obviously, but. I, I looked it up. Apparently, Gabriella Cantor is still in show business. I don't know what she does. I don't know if she's a producer or whatever, but she's on LinkedIn, so <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> Good job, Gabrielle. And uh, that's right next door to hell. Um, any parting thoughts on that? No. I think for the most part, it is the same rough and tumble Guns N' Roses from 1987 that we talked about. The guys who lived the life. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to talk about this song, because I... Because it was the most similar to what we've already heard. Exactly. And it's... It's still proving the point. Um, <laughs> Use Your Illusion 1 is usually cited as the more hard rock, edgier albums of the Use Your Illusion. Okay. Like, pair. Um, Use Your Illusion 2 has more ballads. It has more... It has, like, Knock It On Heaven's Door mm. and Civil War, songs that people generally hear on the radio that are a little bit softer. Okay. I've never heard of Civil War. It's pretty good. So to that end, I think they actually use "Use Your Illusion" one as an ex- as a as an excuse to experiment a little bit more with like growing hard rock trends of the time, right? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about it a 
prominent genre by 1991 that had hit the mainstream hard, right? Mm -hmm. Which is thrash metal. Right. Uh, Metallica released their Black album in 1991. None more Black. uh, Which was like, I think, the biggest radio hit thrash metal had had at that point. Mm -hmm. And Guns N' Roses, in Use Your Illusion 1, kind of experimented a little bit with thrash metal, speed metal, power metal, that kind of stuff, right? So... Yeah, so because they were doing a ballady one anyway that was going to like hit like like you said, you prefer that album anyway. It was a good album. Yeah. So they use this one as like, eh, people will still buy it. Let's so, see what we like. And and some of the stronger songs on Use Your Illusion One are the ones that go full into metal. Mm. Um and one of those songs we're gonna talk about. It's called Garden of Eden. song's balls to the wall so get ready they're just going for it fast yeah. hard um this song is like two minutes 42 seconds and they just pack a lot of like anger oh, wow. and aggressiveness in there so um this song will probably end by the time i finish this sentence <laughs> <laughs> but yeah garden of eden any thoughts on this one it immediately makes me think of crybaby why? Because it's like a song that they sing in Crybaby. At that hillbilly hill. What did they call it? Oh, uh, <laughs> Redneck Riviera. Yeah. It sounds like, well, that's a different song. <laughs> it's, I mean, that was like rockabilly. This is not rockabilly to me, man. This is, this I is said like. what I said. This is like musical whiplash. Um, I mean, yeah, it just makes me think of it. I'm sorry. Like, cry, baby, cry, baby, cry, baby, cry. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I guess what my first thought is. I think there's, like, again, like, a lot of, like, interesting lines. I think this, just like with Right Next Door to Hell, this song also captures the rock and roll lifestyle that they lived at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some ways, I think even more viscerally. I'd actually like the lyrics a lot in this song. Yeah. As I dug into them. I think I can't like as you listen to the song, I can't hear a word nope. the guy says. I can't understand a single thing uh-uh. the man's saying, but um reading the lyrics is very interesting. Yeah. That's why I was like the, I I like really like them. What what's that to you since you're usually not a lyric person? So, um or not, you know what I mean. I think so that's the thing. Like the song runs a mile a minute and they cover a lot of ground. Yeah, so they I do. like I I highlighted a few lines here and there just to like just to point out the topics discussed in this song, right? Because it's not just about the rock and roll lifestyle. It's about the, just the, the nature of the world in 1991. Yep. That these guys were encountering, they were upset because the world sucked yep. for them. I wish they could know that it only gets better. So they've got, we got racial violence and who will cast the first stone and sex is used any way it can be looking through this point of view. There's no way I'm going to fit in. So, you know, racial violence, yeah. uh, drugs and sex, uh, feeling like you can't fit in, you yeah. know? alienation, and then the the bridge is like, I ain't superstitious, but I know when something's wrong. I've been dragging my heels with a B called Hope. Let the undercurrent drag me along. It's such an angsty ennui, yeah. right? That fe- like, 
I don't know. I feel I can feel that, right? Yeah. I ain't superstitious, but I know when something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, man, just something's not right with the world today. Something's not right with my life. Well, with Axel Rose, I can help him point out a few things. <laughs> Probably the drugs well, and the sex and the rock and roll, man. Yeah. But uh, and the lack of humility. But yeah, I, I, I totally, I relate to that. Yeah, I connect to that. Knowing something's wrong, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I have hope, but it sucks. <laughs> That's the only <laughs> thing. It's like I have hope, but it's it's like dragging me along. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Lo- I'm not looking forward to anything. It's like the only thing keeping me going. Yeah, like I have a vague hope, but I don't really know what that hope is shaped like kind of thing. It's like hope for a good future. Well, what does a good future look like? I'm not going to I'm not going to detail that because I might get let down. So I just have a vague hope. I think even in that, like just before the part that you you read uh, about the racial violence, uh, I highlighted. uh, Tell me how a generation's ever supposed to learn this uh, fire is burning and it's out of control. It's not a problem you can stop. It's rock, it's rock and roll. It, yeah, it says it's rock and roll. I didn't do that part because I, I legit in my notes wrote, minus the rock and roll thing, I feel this. But that's the thing. I think at the very end, like, it's to me, it's almost like the, the singer just like throwing his hands like, that's rock and roll. That's the life we live. That's what we've chosen to do. That's true. That's the nature of things. And I think that that's why when the nature of things, what follows, like what you said, right? Um, I read it on the wall. It went straight to my head. It said, dance to the tension of the world on an edge. And then it goes through saying, like, we've got racial violence. Um, Sex is used anyway. It can, even a little bit farther down, like, in the same kind of uh, stuff. It says, uh, but we are lost in the Garden of Eden. Come on. Most organized religions make a mockery of humanity. Our yep. government is dangerous and out of control. I, know, I, know, I The Garden those of too. Eden is just another graveyard. And I was like, no. He's taking like, aim at everybody. everybody. Religion, the government. Sawed off shotgun of lyrics. Yeah. that That is like, that is so apropos. That's the best analogy. This song is a shotgun of aggression. <laughs> yeah. Just like nobody's ducking this. Yeah, uh, and and I think it's interesting. The song is called "Garden of Eden." Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? What do we think? Why he chose that? Yeah. Um, I think probably because it's supposed to be. I I think it's probably because of this idea of uh, America is supposed to be this land of prosperity, land of opportunity, land of all, all the positive things. So <laughs> he is not saying America. He's not saying we're lost in America. He's saying we're lost in the Garden of Eden because that's kind of a thing that like we put ourselves up on a pedestal as being we, the country, you know? I think when I think of the Garden of Eden, I think like on a literature level, it could mean like absolute freedom, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, it's, you know, uh, Adam and Eve, they're, they, they have no clothes on. They're completely free. They're unburdened, right? They can mm-hmm. follow their passions and, you know, uh, in... In uh, Paradise Lost, right? Like, there's this, like, very visceral passage of of Adam and Eve having sex. And it's supposed to be, like, this, like, unrestrained, pure, like, carnal passion, right? Ew. Sorry. (laughs) That's that's high literature for you. But, like, I think, when I think of what they're describing of, like, the rock and roll lifestyle, like, hey, it's rock and roll, right? Like... Mm -hmm. It's also full of this carnal passion mm. for life, you know, and just following every desire, testing everything, right? 
but it's like I'm lost in the Garden of Eden, right? It's like this isn't an ideal for us. This is like almost uh, too much. Too much. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like debauch. It's pure debauchery. Yeah. And I think that's what they mean when they call it lost in the Garden of Eden. That's my take. I could see that. Yeah. I think my take's right, though. It's art. All well, takes are right. No, only unless one of argued, us can be right. As long as they're argued compellingly. You are left. I am right. And like that, the Garden of Eden is closed. <laughs> With fiery we've, swords. We, we've talked about Garden of Eden, and Garden of Eden could have been on loop like 20 times. <laughs> uh, that's very true. Like... You'll never be sick of it. Put it on loop behind us. No, I'm not going to do that to people. (laughs) But from there, we're going to move on to something completely different. We're going to change gears completely, and we're going to move into a song many people have heard called November Rain. Is that sarcasm? Got a piano ballad. You've got... Uh, like a symphony playing an orchestra this is totally different from the garden of eden it's fair your speed metal you're not wrong but yeah this this is the other radio hit uh, is it yes it is. i've never heard this song before um i have some facts and i on know it. i have heard it two times i have some facts on it actually <clears throat> uh so uh november rain peaked at number three on the u.s billboard hot 100 chart making it the longest song in history to enter the top 10 of that chart. The song is nearly nine minutes. No, It's not short. It's the longest song to ever chart. <laughs> That's pretty crazy, isn't it? That is pretty crazy. Nothing stopped it since? Nope. Uh, it is also the third longest song to enter the Hot 100 chart in general. Mm. It was the second longest at the time. I don't know what songs have surpassed it, but yes, it is still currently the longest song to reach the top ten. Well. When I look into your eyes, I can see love Darling, when I hold you, don't you know I feel the same? Yeah, that's Axel Rose's voice, just in case you didn't know. Yep, so this song is... <clears throat> This song is Axel's baby, okay? It was, the music and the lyrics were all written by him. Apparently he had been milling around with like that piano, like that, like just the the piano intro Mm -hmm. for years. Like it had always been in his mind and he'd always be plucking away at a piano trying to play it. And uh, no one else in the band wanted to partake in the production of the song. (laughs) It was all on him. Because I think Slash... Duff McKagan, they didn't want to move into symphonic ballads. Like, mm-hmm. they wanted rock. Yeah. And Axel, he wanted to be a little bit more high-end. Yeah. Um, I mean, it charted. He's, like, Axel, he cites bands like Queen, Elton John, mm-hmm. as his influences. And he said Rocket Man. Yeah. And, like, I think that's, that's, where, he's, that's where he wants to move. <laughs> this is the split in the yeah. band right here. It's like, Axel wants to go one way. Slash and the boys want to go a different way. Axel's too much of a diva to go that way. That's why it's like, it, it's interesting. Axel, like, never, he never, he was never just Axel Rose, right? Like, mm-hmm. there, there's no solo Axel Rose album. It's always Guns N' Roses. That's him. Yeah. Right? But, like, 
it could have been. Yeah. Right? Like, he could have just been like, I'm just going to go make my own music as Axl Rose. Do it, my guy. But, yeah. Like, but Axl, I think, like, he held on to the Guns N' Roses name for, you know, you know, he firmly grasped it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was his, it was his thing. But yeah, this, this is, November Rain is what Axl Rose, that's the type of music he wants to play. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> people liked it. So the lyrics of November Rain were partially inspired by a short story called Without You by Del James, who is a longtime friend of Axel and GNR's current road manager. Current now? Yep. Oh, okay. So it was unpublished at the time. Um, Axel, I guess, had read this short story that he wrote, and then it was published a little bit after. Mm -hmm. And he just decided to adapt the the words, or he adapted the short story into the words of the song. Cool. So speaking of those words, any thoughts on... The the lyrics are weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're not, like, bad weird. They're, like, there's some pretty stuff. And I wonder, like, even as you said, I wonder how much of this... <clears throat> like, there's a line that I think is really pretty that says, But love is always coming and love is always going. And no, one re- and no one's really sure who's letting go today. That's pretty. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that was in the short story or if that was like his adaption of it, you know, because as writers, we know that we're like, if you're not doing poetry, you're using a lot of words to get a point of cross. Lyrics for songs are poetry. So I could see him having like condensed a long thing to this, but I just, it's pretty regardless. When I was in high school listening to this song, like sitting in English class, like in the back of the room with my little headphones in. Thinking like about not, me, your future wife? Yeah. Uh, not <laughs> Hesitation again, husband? You were in college. <laughs> so? It's not illegal for you to think about me. It's just illegal for me to think about you. <laughs> no, but yeah, I was sitting in high, like I'm sitting in my little English class not paying attention to listening to the song and being sad because, I don't know, it's like, no one loves me. Like, no this was the most romantic song ever. <laughs> I mean, it's intended to be romantic. It's one of those things where it's like, you. I have no other references, so it's like whatever you have when you're stupid and young and you have no other points of reference, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is all you get. This is love. I mean, it's a version of love, I guess. Yeah. I think it's... I, I was trying to figure out like what the song was doing, like lyrically what 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 it was doing. Because that line is really good, right? Like you love is coming and going and you never know who's letting go today. And then there are just like movements in it that it feels like well, we watched a music video and the whole thing is set around a wedding. Yep. For the most part. Yep. yep. And so this can easily be read as like cold cold getting cold feet, right? Like and it says, so if you want to love me, then darling, don't reframe uh, or I'll just end up walking. And then it goes to this thing where it says, uh, do you do you need some time all alone? Everybody needs some time alone on their own. Don't you know you need some time all alone? And it feels very much like they're having a talk before their wedding and she's getting cold feet. And he's like, hey, go be alone. Figure it out. Don't be around your friends and stuff. Figure out what you want without input. Because your friends will say whatever. And I was like, oh, that's nice. But then, like, the refrain a little bit later is um, it feels like it's now him having, like, cold feet. Or if they're not in the wedding anymore, if they've gone through with it or whatever. Because it goes, sometimes I need time all alone. Everybody needs some time on their own. And I was like, okay. But then the last movement is... um, 
after all of these things is because nothing lasts forever, even the cold November rain. Don't you think that you need somebody? Don't you think that you need somebody? Everybody needs somebody. You're not the only one. And I'm like, bro, what's happening here? What's happening? But I guess it's going the, back. It's the full range of emotion. It's the full range. But I also guess going back right to the the line that I really like saying love comes and goes and nobody, you don't know who's letting go today. And it feels like yesterday you were letting go today. I'm letting go today. I'm trying to grab back, right? Like love is coming again. It's just very, I guess like well, when like I talk about it like that, messy. it's interesting. Love's messy. I've never had a messy love. Did you <laughs> have a messy love? Yes, I have in my, in my past. Am I your past? In my present. <laughs> but yeah, like love is messy. And like, I can understand like just one day you feel one way about it and then the next day you feel a different way. And it's just like, I'm confused on the way I feel. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't be in Axel's head, right? I, I don't know exactly what was going on in you his mind when he wrote this. Door. But I think the whole point of the song is that love is fleeting, right? Like for, in a lot of ways, like the, just the raw emotion of love can be very fleeting. You yeah. Know? Like, where did it go? What happened? I agree. Like, and then it's like, uh, and you're trying to reconcile with yourself and you're trying mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, navigate it within your own mind, but then you're also dealing with another person. You're like, do you need some time? Like, yeah. what's going on? What is yeah. this? Right. So there's an urban legend that this song was written about his previous girlfriend, uh, the one he wrote Sweet Child of Mine about. Mm-hmm. And they had broken up, obviously, uh, because we talked about the music video. Uh, his new girlfriend, Stephanie Seymour, starred in this music video. The music video. So he's with a different woman, but people are saying he still has feelings for this this other woman. Oh, uh, got it. You know, so he's like, you know, grappling with his emotions. Mm. Like, I had this like just beautiful thing with this woman, but <laughs> she didn't want it or I didn't want what well, You know, what happened? It's just, uh, oh, I, can, I can understand him just being very confused mm. about everything. Yeah. This is messy love we live. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I get that. But I mean, like, maybe, you know, right? Like, that's what people were said. Oh, yeah, he still has feelings for this lady. Which I, I remember you saying when we talked about the last thing, like, he never really got over her or whatever. Yes, they, they say that he potentially, like, he's still writing songs about her. That people still say that. I don't know if it's true. That's, a, I mean, that's fine. I, I think as an artist, right, there's some stuff that, like, I write that is about things in my past. Yeah. But I'm not holding on to it like that. I am just a big, like... No, no, no. Some, Don't get in a relationship if you are <laughs> with somebody new, if you are always like, going to have that door open. Like, that's trash. Like, and, like find some closure. I, like, don't... <laughs> Kids, don't ever get in a relationship with someone who is still hung up on an ex. Just don't wait it out. Just say, hey, when you're, when you're, when you're cool with that, because I don't ever want to have to worry about you and an ex. I just don't. Do you need some time? Do I on need your some own? time? <laughs> yes. Kids, do you need some time? We can talk, but you should go on your own. <laughs> All right. So we talked about the music video. The music video uh, was... Quite the production. It was a production. Uh, the, probably the biggest thing Guns N' Roses had ever done by that point. Um, uh, the music video was directed by Andy Moraham. Uh, he also directed the music video for uh, Garden of Eden, which was not a high production. No. It was one take. It was one take. <laughs> Fish eye lens in a studio. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this one, not so not so much. Uh, do you want to talk, like you said, there was a wedding. Anything else Stick out to you about the music video for November Rain? There was also a funeral. There was a funeral. I think that was like the artistic statement. Like, 
in it's set in a church and Axel's getting married to his girlfriend and the that's how it starts and the music video ends in the same church with him burying that mm-hmm. girlfriend. So there's a okay, well before I go there, the other thing that stood out was his very disgusting mustache. I hated it. <laughs> I kept commenting on it. Mm-mm, not a good look for you, Axel. It's better than the dreadlocks he'd be rocking like ten years from now. Axel. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, the, the music video concept um, was probably, like, new for the time. Like, it, it, I've seen it done, but, like, obviously after. <laughs> so people well, it's like every, everybody was doing music videos back then, and everyone was trying to push the envelope. Everyone yeah. was trying to top everybody. No, no, I mean, I mean, the concept of, like, oh, we're at a wedding, but then it's also a funeral. There's a, I'll, I'll, there's a Carrie Underwood video. Oh, dear. That does that, and it's so good, though. It's so good. I think it does it very well. I'm going to make you watch it, and then we're probably going to... I'm going to I'm, I'm going to make sure it gets posted to Twitter. Okay. <laughs> um, so another, like, standout moment in um, this music video, and I think this is the point where, like, the rest of the band, you, you lost them. Like, mm-hmm. this is where it's like, all right, we're just being excessive at this point. Right. Was the guitar solo with Slash. So let me start the song back up right when that... Guitar solo starts. So the music video, Slash leaves the church and he's out in the desert. Yeah. And he's just just shredding on his guitar. And they've got like... 20 aerial shots all yeah. just capturing this man shred on his guitar in the desert. And it's like the most grandiose it's so cinematic. Much. Yeah. It's definitely shot by helicopter. <laughs> this wasn't even the last of it. So November Rain is the first in a trilogy of videos. This is the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one is the music video for Don't Cry. And then the third music video is for Estranged. Estranged is like the tippity top Oh, wow. Of Guns N' Roses, like, high-production music videos. Huh. Slash performs a guitar solo on, like, an aircraft carrier. And there are dolphins, like, like <gasps> leaping in the water. It is, is crazy. It I know, it's real. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, like, when you, th- like, you think about it, you're like, all right, they've, they're, like, getting super artistic and, like, cinematic with this stuff. It's like, are they even a rock band anymore? You know? <laughs> I love Estranged. It's one of my favorite Guns N' Roses songs. Mm-hmm. But I can understand that song losing people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, this isn't Appetite for Destruction. This is very different. Yeah. Um, and the men in the band felt that way. So, Slash, I got a, I got a quote. Side with him? Or I got, I got a quote from, from him when he told Q Magazine, quote, we got into doing these huge production videos, and by November Rain, it was too much. Just too involved. At the end of the day, it was a great video, but that's when I started realizing that I was that it was getting out of hand. Yeah. It's what he wanted. I just... I guess, like, my question at that point, right, when you have so much artistic differences, but you're also, like, well-known, why don't you just start your own band? Well, Slash would. Yes. And yes. <laughs> What was the name of his band? Uh, I mean, he he performed in Slash's Snake Pit. Oh. He performed as just Slash. Got it. And and several other projects. Yeah, I mean, I know him in I know him in other projects. That's why I was just like, mm. yeah. <laughs> so he's just like, no, 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 gotta go now. So uh, November Rain 
um, like I said, it is. It has like its legacy lives on in other songs, right? Don't cry, estranged. Apparently, there is a fourth song that has been written in the series titled "The General," but it has yet to be released. Call one eight hundred General now. <laughs> Call the general. Take some time. <laughs> so it has been released. <laughs> uh, Axel Rose, you heard it here first. He wrote that jingle. But yeah. So the general is like this mythical song that ex- that exists, but no one can hear. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know people on YouTube were like, "This is a ten second clip of the general, guys. It's real." And you're like, "That's not what that is." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I remember back in the day when I was like really into Guns N' Roses, and like this was like early YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, like 2007, 2008, when like the YouTube was like Wild West, and you can get away with anything. You know? Yeah. Dudes were like releasing or leaking possible new Guns N' Roses song, and you didn't know what was real and what wasn't. It mm. was it was really it was it was like fun. Yeah, it was like this. I don't know. I look back on those days and I was like, man, the internet's changed. <laughs> <laughs> it's no longer the Wild West. Yeah, I mean, it's good for a lot of things. So I have one more fun story about November Rain. At an outdoor performance in Taiwan, December eleventh, two thousand nine, it began to rain during performance of this song. Axel Rose ad-libbed the chorus and sang December Rain. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a quaint little story. Oh, and gosh. I love it. Uh, so yeah, that's that's November Rain. I'd be lying if I said November Rain was like the high point of Axel's artistic excess. Mm. No. I feel like the point when he was the most like artistically excessive was the last song we're going to talk about, Coma. Oh, I've been calling it Coma. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Coma is the longest Guns N' Roses song in existence. It's so long. It's 10 minutes long. It's so long. It has no chorus. It's so long. It is ultra experimental. And let's get that started. So yeah, this song, I think from the very get-go has a very uncomfortable feel does it i i think so it's like it's like written in this like minor key and you i just like feel like i feel dangerous listening to it you feel dangerous listening to it creepy and like i don't know tense do you not feel that Mm -mm. oh okay (laughs) maybe not because it's not tense i think maybe i just listen to songs that have like i don't know with minor key and da 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 but i I don't i'm not a music expert (laughs) let's talk about it on a podcast (laughs) but yeah like i i don't know something about this song just makes me uncomfortable and i think that's kind of a cool thing yeah i think it might have to do with well, I mean, can you hear the lyrics clearly when you're not reading them? You, personally. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the, in this song, yes. Okay, I'm just saying, I, I tip, um, his voice is very high. Yeah. <laughs> I think that lyrically, it's a doozy. Oh, yeah? <laughs> is that a good doozy or a bad doozy? Depends on the day. Depends but, on the doozy. <laughs> depends on the doozy. 
Um, depends on if we need to put a trigger warning. Uh, yeah, we we have certainly put some trigger warnings on this. Yes. Yes. So I think that like in line with the lyrics, I can see it feeling more tense than tense. like than um, anxious or creepy. Yeah. You said like so. What are you, what are your thoughts on the lyrics um, and where this song goes? Because it does go places. It does go places. I think that like there's some really nice imagery in it. I know that like it starts off. It seems to start off right with um, the speaker yep. acknowledging that they are in a coma. Right. It starts off. You've caught me in a coma, and I don't uh, want to ever come back to this world again. Kind of like it's in a coma. And so it already like sets you off, sets you up for this kind of like numb and um, displaced yeah. feeling. Yeah. Where the speaker is trying just to dissociate or or willing to right like step back from the world, um, and then you get a whole like bit where it, it seems like where like you can hear almost through like the numbness of this character, yep. uh, them being in a hospital and trying to be revived and hearing the like RNs and whoever's present trying to uh, help this person out. This guy, yep. definitely I, this I can, guy. I can hit play on that. The, the voice going, no. <laughs> so, yes, this, it definitely puts the listener right there. Yeah. In the action. Yeah. Uh, and if you're listening with headphones, it goes between both ears. Yep. I, I hate that. Stereo. Um, and, yeah, and so, like, even right after that, right, um... It, it ends with the doctor or nurse or whoever it is asking who's got the defibrillator. And then the next sung lyrics by Axel slash this character, not slash <laughs> Axel. Axel or hyphen <laughs> hyphen this character is uh, please understand me. I'm climbing through the wreckage of all my twisted dreams, but this cheap investigation can't stifle all my screams. And the imagery there is wonderful and then just starts to set you up for what this character is like going going through right like they say they're at a crossroads and then almost everything after this point is like suicidal ideation mm. or um just kind of contemplating giving up yeah you can kind of hear him here one's gonna mess with my head no more i can't understand what all the fight is for but it's so nice here down the He's like drifting in his like subconscious, like maybe I like it here. Yeah. You know, this, it's quiet. Yeah. Like literally the lyrics are uh no one's gonna mess with my me- my head no more. I can't understand what all the fighting's for. But it's so nice down here off the shore. I wish you could see this. Because there's nothing to see. Right. It's peaceful here, and it's fine with me. Not like the world I used to live. I never really wanted to live. So, I have, like, Axel told, a, like, a story on where this song came from. And, uh, like, 
it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like near death experiences are terrifying. Um, my dad's told me a story of how he had a near death experience, and it sounded terrifying. <laughs> Um, but Axel had his own near-death experience, and here is what he said. Quote, I started writing about when I OD'd four years ago. The reason I OD'd was because of stress. I couldn't take it. I just grabbed the bottle of pills in an argument, and I just gulped them down and end up in the hospital. But I liked that I wasn't in, a f- in the fight anymore, and I was fully conscious that I was leaving. I liked that. But then I go, all of a sudden, my first real thoughts were, okay, but you haven't toured enough. The, wor- the record's not going to last. Uh, it's going to be forgotten. This and that. You have to work. You have work to do. Get out of this. And then I went, no. And I woke up, you know, and I pulled myself out of it. But in describing that, some people could take it wrong and mean, go put yourself into a coma, you know. But it's really tricky, and I'm still, tr- I'm still playing with the words to figure out how to like show some hope in there. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's really dark. Yeah, I. Th- I like hear that. So like, even when the the part that I just read and goes in line with what you're just, <laughs> but legit, like my comment on this these lines is like my suicide, like the suicidal tendencies part of me hears this so clearly, right? Like because that I feel like that's a thing that you don't necessarily have to OD to feel, and that's why like yeah, that's terrifying because yeah. there have definitely been times where I'm like. I've like dissociated and I'm just like here in my body in the in the present just here but like not interacting yeah. or being actually in reality and it hurts less and you're just kind of like how do I do this permanently and if you just let yourself go down that spiral this is exactly where you, where you are you're like oh man like that's the the line that hit me the hardest in here is like I wish you could see this because there's nothing to see like could you imagine that kind of just peace in the yeah. world? Yeah. Hey, again, trigger warnings, guys. Oh gosh, we're gonna put suicidal yeah. things in the in the thing, like hotlines and stuff. Yeah, because it's 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 a very dark place to be. I think specifically because it's not that dark. Like it's not like oh, there's darkness at the end of the, it. Like feels like light and airy, and your burdens are gone. Right. <laughs> And, like, the music in this song, I think, really sells it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, that opening line, like, the opening of the song, the first few minutes are, like I said, tense and uneasy. And mm-hmm. then it gets really just cluttered and loud and busy. And mm-hmm. you got doctors screaming at you and Axel's going, no! <laughs> and it's, like, so much, right? And it almost yeah. feels like how you feel when you're stressed out. You're just like, ah, oh, I just go, every, your thoughts are everywhere, right? And then it just quiets down and you're just like drifting and you're like wow this is nice right. peaceful but the song doesn't end there and i think that's where it's like i don't know it's sort of where like he tries to put in the hope yeah this tragedy of of life is like you know like like axel said it's like even though i was feeling this peace there was still that part of me that's just like well no i gotta do this and i gotta do this i can't my life's not over yet i gotta do this and this and this mm-hmm. right you know what what about this what about this and your mind starts jumping around the and the song picks back up and more thoughts come in, and during this portion of the song, the those thoughts are personified by the voices of women. Axel, like Axel's flings, I guess you know. Okay. like all these nagging women just 
screaming at him in his head. <laughs> like, I mean, so there's a little bit of misogyny in here. I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to wave that away. Like, you know, it, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, all these, all these like ladies voices are very annoying. And like the song makes it seem like it's just busy, more mm-hmm. busyness. Yeah. And uh, I think that's effective. Yeah. I'm not, I'm like, thing. I'm not going to get into like, yeah, these women should stop nagging Axel. But mm-hmm. like, to be honest, like just sonically, the song is trying to make it seem busy right. and, and active, and I think it accomplishes that. Yeah. So uh, in an interview later on, Axel said at the like, because I guess he struggled to write this song, right? Like he had all these thoughts and he didn't know where to take it. I can believe that. Yeah, and he says I tried to write that song for a year and I couldn't. I went to write in the studio and passed out. I woke up two hours later, sat down and wrote the the whole end of the song, like just off the top of my head. It was like, don't even know what's coming out, man. It's just coming. I think one of the best things I've ever written was maybe the end segment of the song Coma. It just poured out. Mm. And I feel like I can hear the stream of consciousness at the very end of the yeah, song when yeah, it's just yeah. like, blah, blah, word soup <laughs> coming out. Word soup. Any, anything strike out about the end of the song? Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure I highlighted most of it. Whoa, well. There's a line that says, uh, and this, all this crass communication that has left you in the cold isn't much consolation when you feel so weak and old. And again, right? Like at this point, I had, when I was reading through it and what I'll go to later, um, it's, the whole song is just kind of about like, choosing to live or choosing to die like having that choice there's even just a, a line that says got your mind uh got your mind in submission got your life on the line that it's it's about control it's about power right yeah. and i'm not saying that uh, all suicides are about like power but a lot of it is about like having that kind of control something that you can control and nobody else can and then nobody else can ever control you again kind of thing right but like all the stuff at the end, right? Like, it's just... But nobody... Po- uh, that feels very, like, word soupy. But also, I don't know. Because, like, some of them, like, some of the couplets make sense together. And then they'll he'll throw in a line. And I'm like, I don't see how that connects to that. And then it, like, jumps back. But <clears throat> it goes. Uh, but no one pulled the trigger. They just stepped aside. They be down by the water while you watch them wave goodbye. They be calling in the morning. They be hanging on the phone They'd be waiting for an answer, but you know no one's home. When the bell stopped ringing, it, it was nobody's fault but your own. There were always ample warnings. There were always subtle signs, and you would have seen it coming if we had. But we gave you too much time. Mm-hmm. Like that whole thing. I'm sorry. Did it take me too long to read that? No, you're fine. Okay. Um, that whole thing just feels very much like part. Well, okay, parts of it feel very much much like accusatory. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's just, where it's just kind of like, why you, you knew I was going this way. Like it was obvious. Yeah. Like there were both like big warnings and small warnings, but you say you didn't see it coming because I gave you too much time. So it's just things like that. Or even just like, it's sad, but beautiful that I, because this is the, the idea coming from the character's point of view, from Axel's point of view of, um, feeling like you're being very obvious 
Uh, and but like the people in your life not knowing, not seeing, yeah. and it's usually because like you've been this way for a while, and so they've just learned to like cope with it, cope with it, and like oh, that's just how they are. Where it's not like that's the on encroaching of depression or the encroaching of just the song. Stuff. The song. The, and, the end of the song is a cry for help. Yeah, right. Like th- specifically the line that like really like I think hit me was maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it says they be down by the water while you watch him wave goodbye. Uh, and I think my brain wants to read that as like, you know, like you're drowning in the water and they're just watching you wave, and they're mm. watching you while waving because they think you're swimming mm. kind of thing. And that's yeah. what this whole thing feels like, right? They're like, well, it's nobody's fault. Nobody pulled the trigger. They just stepped aside. Yeah. That's, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. And I was just like, ooh, ooh. Mm, I should not feel this so deeply. <laughs> you know, digging into this makes me really appreciate like the maturity and growth in Axl Rose as a songwriter. You know, like as a lyrics writer. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, we could talk. Like, he wrote a song about how much he hates his, his neighbor. You know, mm-hmm. like, and that's very juvenile. But at the same time, it's like these are real. These are real deal. Like, yeah. thoughts and feelings you get to put down on paper, man. Yeah. Like, that's real. Also, please have a ha- have a mental health professional that you see. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> We Axel? Definitely, we definitely activate, a- advocate that. But yeah, that's coma. So yeah, coma fades out on a flat line. I don't know if that's supposed to mean that this speaker gave up or gave in. Or, or maybe they made it and then they made it, went out of the hospital so the thing was taken off of it, them. It, it's, it's, amb- it's ambiguous. And I, I kind of like that. Yeah. It's lovely. Um, so for nearly 25 years, this song had only been performed four times. With Axel citing the difficulty in singing it, like live. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very long song. I'm sure it's taxing. And it's hard to sing all that. But after a surprise performance in 2016, the song has since become a regular on the set list. I saw them in 2017. Um, and I like to be surprised. I don't like to look up set lists ahead of time. So when they started <laughs> singing this song, I freaked out. <laughs> I was like, no, what? Because it, it had been known. Like, Axel didn't like to sing this song mm-hmm. live. So that was quite cool. Nice. Yeah. Was that the the show that people only came for Sweet Child of Mine? And yes, left? that is the show where they all <laughs> everyone went to the bathroom after Sweet Child of Mine. They did not stay to listen to Coma. Should have. They missed out. Oh, yeah, it, it was quite interesting. Yeah, it was it was cool. It was pretty cool. But hey, that's use your illusion. Two one. one. <laughs> use your illusion one. <laughs> use one illusion. Before I talk about the mainstream reception, what did you think? I like the song. <laughs> is it coma? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put it on my... F- it's ten minutes long. True. But uh, I think that it was, like, lyrically evocative. And, you know, actually musically. Yeah. I think there's a lot of cool concepts in here. They were really branching out. And Guns N' Roses, like, with, you know, they're they're experimenting with metal. They're experimenting with these, like, grand productions and you know, Elton John style, like ballads and stuff Mm -hmm. like, and with coma, there's a lot to admire about this album. Yeah. But as I said, there's, we looked at four songs and there are 16 songs on the album. Too many songs. 16 songs just on use your illusion one. And there are an additional 13 on use your illusion two. Too many songs. Too many songs. And some, so many of them are just forgettable. Too many cooks. (laughs) They had too many ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because they had two bands. Yeah, basically. <laughs> you had Axel and, and Slash. Slash and Co. Yeah. 
Despite outlets like Kmart and Walmart refusing to stock the album due to profanity, Use Your Illusion 1 debuted at number two on the Billboard charts. Ooh. Any guesses on what debuted at number two? Or number one? Use Your Illusion 1? Two? Use Your Illusion 2 was number one. Use Your Illusion 1 was number two. Ah. Yeah. Ah. Reception to Use Your Illusion 1 was mainly positives with critics regarding it as the more hard-rocking album and praising the ambitious November Rain and Coma. Okay. Right in line with what we think. Yeah. Um, however, some criticize the album for its filler tracks, which I totally agree with. Like, who's going to listen to the song Dustin Bones or Bad Obsession or You Ain't the First? We did. We, Twice. We, yeah. It's, those aren't bad songs. They're just, like, not memorable songs. And this, this album just doesn't have a lot of hits. Yeah. I'm like, if you're going to listen to one of the Use Your Illusions, listen to Two Fucks. <laughs> I, I, think I, I think Two is the better album. Uh, minus my world at the end. You know what they say. Choose the charm. So Choose the cooked egg. Legacy of Guns N' Roses after Use Your Illusion. So Rolling Stone listed both Use Your Illusion albums together at number 41 of their list of 100 best albums of the 90s. All right. Use Your Illusion 1 was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance, but it lost to Van Halen. <laughs> Uh, from 1991 to 1993, Guns N' Roses led an ultra-successful Use Your Illusion tour, which also was a source of infamy for the band due to riots, late starts, cancellations, and outspoken rantings by Axl Rose. Yeah. Par for the course. Well, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin abruptly quit the band November 7th, 1991, just two months after the release of Use Your Illusion, citing a combination of Rose's personal behavior his mismanagement of the band, and difficulties in difficulties being around Slash, Sorum, and McKagan due to his newfound sobriety and their continuing addictions. Do you, Mago? Yeah. Um, and, like, Stradlin was, like, Axel, one of Axel's closest friends, so mm. that was, like, Axel losing one of the, you know... The only people on his side? Yeah, on his team. Well... Uh, Stradlin would reunite briefly with GNR in 1993, and then again in 2006, and then again in 2016. Nice. So he's still, he'll, he'll show up. He's in and out. Yeah. They just uh, got to stop smoking around him. Uh, he was replaced by LA-based guitarist Gilby Clark, who would stay on with the band until the release of their next album, which maybe we'll talk about <laughs> in a later episode of Media Made. Will we? Yes. I can't remember. Spoilers. Oh. And that's where we will leave you for now. I thought we were done with the goodens and ruse. Nope. <laughs> Can we be done with the good They're one of my favorite bands, after all. Oh, curse you, high school Rodney. But hey, we're going to close out this segment with another uh, medley-type song from Use Your Illusion 1. I think it's my favorite song from Use Your Illusion 1. It is called Perfect Crime. So with that, we will see you on the other side of the break with Jess's album of 1991. Save me. We'll continue after these messages. This beautiful Sunset Strip property has everything a rock and roller could ever want. Axel Rose has to move. A bar, a barbecue, and a pool within throwing distance. To acquire a place where he can collect his thoughts. The bed's never been slept in. 
I'm not saying it hasn't been used, it just hasn't been slept in. Away from the noise of angry neighbors. This wall's only been smashed once. Some guy's head, but it's been repaired. It's like new now. Evict Axel Rose, take possession of his condo, his furniture, his stereo, and his aura. If these mirrors could talk. And after you move in, Axel will throw you a housewarming party. So send a postcard to MTV's Evict Axel contest or pick up the phone and call. And someday soon, all of this could be yours. You can have the pad. I'm keeping my aura. with the most dangerous man in the game. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Old Michael, he's back. Young Michael. Young Mike. All right, so that song you're listening to, that is Dangerous by Michael Jackson. And uh, that's the album that he's singing about. He was bad, but now he's dangerous. This is essentially a sequel to Bad, the song (laughs) and the album. Released November 26, 1991, his fourth in a string of historic R&B mega-hits, we have Dangerous by Michael Jackson. Yeah, did it rain when this album dropped in November? Who knows? Badoomch. Badoomch. <laughs> it probably rained somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so return of... We got we got Michael Jackson, Guns N' Roses, head-to-head once again. We know how this turned out last time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's even more of a one-sided fight this time. Yeah, like, it is. <laughs> Oh man, so yeah, dangerous. Tell us, how did you? What is what is your history with dangerous? I will say what I said in the other episode. I'm black, and your mom, <laughs> and my mom. <laughs> did you? Did your mom crank bad more than dangerous, or the other way around? I don't know. I don't know. That's that's, that's a hard one to to. I, no, I don't know because here's the thing: we listened to mostly in the car, and then we had cassette players and stuff at yeah. that. So. I don't know that I could uh, shake a fist at that. I'll ask her. I would say, like, for me, Bad and Thriller were the only ones that penetrated my, like, life. Yeah. Uh, before he died. And when he, when, when Michael died in 2009, VH1, MTV, they would play all the, you know, videos and stuff like that. And I remember hearing or watching the music video for Remember the Time and then for Black and White. And those were, like, the only songs that, like, really resonated with me even then and then we listened to this song mm-hmm. the for, song or this or, or, sorry, we listened to this album for this project and i'm like dangerous where have you been all my life <laughs> really <laughs> dangerous is i think michael's best album oh okay in my opinion all right it's fantastic i don't disagree because we didn't have to listen to any songs that had peewee's playhouse in them this time around this so. is true <laughs> I, yeah it's just something about it. this this album is just so excellent did you download it yeah i sure did <laughs> yep and uh yeah there's there's a lot to say um we're gonna cover some some familiar ground with michael jackson i think you know he had his his topics of discussion yes frequently um but he was really stretching his his like he was really like 
embracing the mm-hmm. modern sound of the early 90s, right? Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about it when we talked about En Vogue in 1990, right? Like that 90s New Jack swing sound. Yeah. This album is all of that. It's all swinging jacks. Yeah. All swinging jacks in closets. New Jackson swing. No. All of that sounded bad. <laughs> New Jackson swing. New Jackson swing. All right, so we need to cover a little bit of history before we jump into Dangerous. And uh, it's the Michael Jackson we all know and love. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. none of this is going to be surprising to us. Correct. So after the release of 1987's Bad, Michael Jackson led the record-setting Bad World Tour from September 87 to January 89. It made the most money. Had the most people. It made all the money. In 1989, Michael started throwing around ideas for his next album, uh, with one idea being a greatest hits collection with a handful of new songs with the proposed title Decade. Oh. He would do, do this. that later. <laughs> he would do this in the mid-90s. Called mis- history. history. Um, work on the album was sluggish as Jackson was preoccupied with management changes and film ambitions. I don't think those film ambitions ever came to fruition. He was in a film. Which one? Oz. That was in the 70s. He was in a film. He had ambitions in the 90s. <laughs> they didn't come to anything. Um, during that time... Did I say Oz? The Wiz. <laughs> anyway. During that time, he also purchased uh, 2,700 acres of land near Santa Inez, California, and built his new home called... Oh, Jackson's Home. Neverland Ranch. <laughs> at the cost of $17 million. <laughs> so, yes, Neverland was... The man earned his privacy. He did. Uh, and he... Built Neverland to be the childhood he never had, uh, complete with a Ferris wheel, a carousel, a movie theater, and a zoo. I would just have the movie theater, because I would like to watch movies big, but not be sitting with strangers. This is true. <laughs> especially especially in today's times. Yes. But yeah, yeah. This is like, he, he, just, he built this, like, oasis for himself. He built a Richie Rich house. He did. Yeah. Yeah. He... he Michael Jackson lived the, like, blank check life we all wanted to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Black man, black man, get your money. He really was a giant. He, he really was just a big kid. Yeah. Um, in June 1990, uh, Jackson collapsed while dancing in his home uh, due to a possible panic attack with symptoms of chest pains, dehydration, and inflammation of his ribs. Uh, soon after, the entire decade concept was dropped completely, and Jackson de- uh, determined, or determined that his new material constituted a full album, which he called "Dangerous." And I think he called it "Dangerous" due to his dangerous work ethic. Yeah, and that's why I, that's why I mentioned all of that. Okay, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, I was like, what is the segue? I don't understand. At least he's self-aware mm. from the outset. Jackson had expressed a desire of more independence and creative control of the creative process. Um, To this end, he separated himself from longtime producer Quincy Jones to avoid the perception that his success depended on Mr. Jones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Besides, Quincy, he was too busy working on Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince. Fresh Fresh Prince this year? 1990. Oh, yeah. It was just a a year ago. he He was still on it. Yeah. At that point. Um, so, Dangerous was essentially completed with multiple produ- multiple producers in multiple different studios around the country. Uh, one of those producers was Teddy Riley, who helped pioneer the new Jack Swing sound. Hey, Teddy Pentagrass. In, in total, <laughs> yeah. 
Jackson spent $10 million to record Dangerous. Roughly 60 to 70 songs were recorded for the album. Whoa. And work was completed on the final product just one month before the label's deadline. I mean, it's better than we just heard from GNR finishing it on during tour. a tour. Yeah. I, it's it's very similar. I think the work the work ethics. The perfectionism. The perfectionism. Axel and Michael never could have worked together. No. Also, Slash like must have the patience of a saint to be working with Michael and Axel at the same time. That's fair. I feel like though, like he knew what he was getting into with Michael. And I feel like Michael probably took because considering the songs that Slash played on, they were not the ballady songs. So he like utilized Slash for things that Slash would have liked. So I assume and I've like heard like Michael's a great collaborator. Like if he's like, this is our thing, he bends a little bit more rather than it's mine. It's got to be perfect. Yeah. Um, apparently some recording sessions for Dangerous lasted up to 18 hours and Jackson and the producers rented hotel rooms four minutes away from the studio so they can get back to work as soon as possible. Ew. Yep. And that's <laughs> Dangerous. That is too dangerous. We're going to start out with Dangerous with... Um, with a hit, I wanted to, you know, get people into the mood, get people, you know, uh, introduce into a the, dangerous mood. Introduce the album with a song that most people are familiar with, and that song is "Remember the Time." I've never heard that one. The song has the song definitely has a groove. I like it. We're. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad this isn't a live podcast because when people saw the way that we danced to some stuff, sit dancing is never cool, but it's fun. So yeah, this is Remember the Time. Uh, this was co-produced by Michael and Teddy R- Riley. Uh, Riley wanted Dangerous specifically to sound different from all of Jackson's earlier work. And Jackson wanted to bring in that new style. So this song, I don't think it's full new Jack Swing, but it's leaning in that Mm -hmm. direction, right? Like there are some songs in this album that are just full on new Jack Swing. This song is close, but not quite there. Easing on down the road towards new Jack Swing. Yeah. So tell me, what do you, what, you, you insisted on doing Remember the Time. Any reasons why? Because I wanted to hear it and dance to it while we talked. Okay. <laughs> I think more than um, lyric, like, again, right? One of the things where I'm like, oh, I love lyrics. Occasionally, it's not about the lyrics because this song doesn't really The lyrics suck in this all. song. But it's so catchy and dancey and the music video. It's really... It's really the music video. We'll get to the music video. But yeah, I was like, I went and like skimmed the lyrics of this song and I was like. Nothing happens in it. It's just childhood love. Yeah. Holding hands. I was actually going to ask you a question. Yeah. Husband Pop Quiz. Do you remember the time when we first met? Yes. Tell me. Uh, I backed my truck into a light pole and you noticed. And yelled at everyone. Okay. Do you remember when we fell in love? Do you remember the time when we fell in love? Yes. When, when, when was that? Uh. I think we had we had courted for a while, <laughs> and uh, I think I said I love you in a car after we left your mom's house. That's true. Do you remember the time on the phone, you and me, when we were up till dawn, 
my baby. <laughs> yes. I don't think we ever talked till dawn. I am a we, I am a morning person. Not we did a watch person. movies over the. We phone, did though. watch movies over the phone. I had you watch a scary episode of Doctor Who with me. You're like, I don't understand why you're scared. This show is stupid, and I'm like, you're stupid. We watched Black Annie over the phone. We watched Blanny on the phone. <laughs> you can't say that. That's my word. <laughs> but yeah, this like lyrically, the song Annie is just. Hull. It's like nothing. It's just like oh yeah, pure. Like cotton candy, cotton candy. That's exactly right. Cotton candy, bubblegum pop. But I haven't stopped moving. So, it's true. Um, apparently, the song like people want to like attribute like who who is this song about? Right? Is it about his you know his is uh, who is his first wife? Uh, Presley, Elvis's daughter. Uh huh. Um, Anne Marie. I can't remember. I have no idea. It, or it's about uh, his second wife, Debbie Rowe. Or you know, it's about this. You know, it's like apparently the song was dedicated to Diana Ross. That makes sense. Which is like his big sister. That makes sense. This song is such a, like, platonic, Mm -hmm. like, almost like brotherly love feel. Like, it's not, like, we like to joke, because this song does, or sorry, this album, Dangerous, does feature a more mature Michael, Mm -hmm. right? There are straight up, like, sex jams on this album, right? (laughs) I like to joke, it's like... There are a few songs in this album where Michael Jackson is just begging for sex. That's true. <laughs> in the closet, uh, give in to me. That's our favorite Michael Jackson. Yeah, lyric it's house. just it's just Michael Jackson like really exploring his sexuality. His, uh, y- you know, his he's a man. I get it, but I don't want to think about him exploring. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's the best way I can say. It. Like it, Michael is discussing more mature topics, right? Mm. Like not just not like some of the more like you know, childlike songs of past albums. Yeah. Like Michael's a man and he's going to s- write songs about being a man. Right. And, but I want to go to war. I'm a man. It's a TikTok. I'm sorry. <laughs> but very much that. But remember the time is not that it is just. Yeah. Childlike love type songs like child. Yeah. I mean, he'd like throw some like not unchild like you know some other stuff do you remember in spain when we held hands when we do you remember what we did but for the most on the park on the park after dark these are lyrics <laughs> but yeah let's talk about this music video mm. so the music video is a straight up like short film yes um it is directed by john stapleton fresh off boys in the hood uh, and it stars a multitude of, of stars, big stars, uh, big names. Who we got? We got Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. We got Magic Johnson. <laughs> I don't know what you just said. <laughs> Magic to me. Johnson. Magic Johnson. We got Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Yes. We've got David Bowie's wife. <laughs> Iman. She wasn't his wife yet, but yes. People are gonna get mad because I couldn't remember Iman's name. So cut that. We got Iman. And we have... You're not going to cut it! <laughs> I see you! And we got Tommy Tiny Lister, Debo himself. Ah. Uh, rest in peace, by the way. Rest in rest peace. Rest in peace to Tiny Lister. So, yeah, uh, this... I don't know how they settled upon the theme of this video, but mm. it is set in ancient Egypt. Yes. Eddie Murphy plays in a, like a pharaoh, an Egyptian king. This is like a year after coming to America, so it's the same accent. It's the same voice, yeah. <laughs> and Iman is his like you know his queen. queen. And entertain me. She's bored. I'm bored. I want to be entertained. 
Can my pharaoh find some way to entertain his queen? And Eddie Eddie Murphy does the the eyebrow, <laughs> and he brings the in people's uh, eyebrow. Huh? He does the people's eyebrow. He does a form of the people's eyebrow. <laughs> and then he brings in all these entertainers, like a dude who eats fire. And uh, was it like a juggler? a juggler? I was entertained by all of these people. And then Michael comes in. And he's in a cloak. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> and Michael just starts dancing. Yeah. And it turns on the queen. It does. Because she remembers the time that they danced. The thing that's the thing, like the, 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 the lyrics the lyrics in the song don't match up with the narrative being presented in the video. Like mm-hmm. was Michael an old fling of the, the Pharaoh? Or I'm sorry, of the Queen? <laughs> I don't know. And and I guess we're left to the imaginations. We'll and then, never know. And from there it's just a mix between a chase of Michael being chased by the, the, the Pharaoh's guards and him dancing to the music. Yeah. Um can I put a motion forward that from now on when I'm bored, I will just say all of Amon's lines? I'm bored. I'm bored. <laughs> will the pharaoh not do something to entertain his queen? You would be the pharaoh in this sentence, and I would be the queen. Are you not entertained? No, I'm not. That's why I'm saying I'm bored. Give me somebody's head to chop off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the video's, like, it's a, good, it's a good video. It it's... has one, one good, uh, um... Effect that you're like, oh, that looks pretty good. And then immediately you're like, that doesn't. <laughs> there is a cool special effect where Michael, like, to escape the guards, just morphs into sand. Yeah. Like some kind of ancient wizard. <laughs> we should send it to the boys. It's it's a pretty cool effect for 1991. Michael, Michael was the only guy around who could spend that kind of money yeah. on a legit computer effect for yeah. a music video. Not even Guns N' Roses with their aerial, sh- aerial shots could get away with that. Um, so yes, I think this is the appropriate amount of production value for a Michael Jackson video. Yeah. Um, we will talk about another song where I think he went overboard and we'll get there. <laughs> and we'll get there. Uh, but that is, is that all you have to say about I, the time? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm glad you remembered the time. We fell in love. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the next song, I have a bit of a story to tell. Um, so I'm going to get this one started. It's called Will You Be There? This song, this song is ultra nostalgic for me for one reason. You said we wouldn't talk about it. It is the theme song for the film Free Willy, which is a movie I watched tons of. Tons! And Free Willy is the first encounter, like the first time I, the first time I saw Michael Jackson. He Michael, Free Willy was the first experience I had with Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't talk about it when we talked about Michael Jackson in 87 music, but I'm going to talk about it right now. Um, I had the Free Willy VHS tape that I stole from my aunt. And you know how on VHS tapes they had previews before the movie? Yeah. Uh, one of those previews was for this Michael Jackson video. I don't know if he was selling a VHS tape of like videos from this album or whatever. Roll piece. He was selling word, world peace. World peace. So Michael, it, it was clips of him performing the song in the music video, right? And it's like Michael in the white shirt and like with the, it's like painter pants. I don't mm-hmm. know. But from what I remember being a little kid, I couldn't tell if Michael Jackson was a man or a woman. Hmm. Like he was very androgynous in the, in yeah. his, his 
get up that. for that video. So I just think that's a very... Uh, so you weren't sure if it was Michael or Michelle? Yeah, it was just... His just, voice didn't give it away? <laughs> his voice made it more difficult to understand. <laughs> that's the thing. It's a, it's a strange little story that I... When I first saw Michael Jackson as a little, little, little kid, yeah. I didn't know if he was a man or a woman. So we, what I'm playing right here is actually the, not the album version of Will You Be There. I'm playing the radio version because the album version is long. Very long. So let me fade out on that one. So the album version of Will You Be There clocks in at 7 minutes 40 seconds, roundabouts. Mm-hmm. It is the longest Michael Jackson solo song ever. On any album, yes. Really? So we listened to the longest Guns N' Roses song on this episode and the longest Michael Jackson episode. Longest Michael Jackson song in this episode. Huh. So let's get the album version started because it has a very long introduction. This 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 version of the song, what you're hearing right now is the like a, a prelude by the Cleveland Orchestra and the Cleveland Orchestra Chorus uh, performing a version of Beethoven's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. They're performing a vocal vocally. Yeah. So you, the Ode to Joy. Everyone knows the Ode to Joy. This is a lesser known portion of that oh. movement. Um, and they're singing German. I have the German lyrics. <clears throat> you have them in German or you have, I have them? In, I have the English translation of the German. I would like you to read them in Deutsch. I, I cannot. It's impossible. Um, so what they're saying is, do you bow down millions? Do you sense the creator world? Seek him beyond the starry canopy. Beyond the stars must he dwell. <laughs> so, you know, invoking the creator. Okay. God himself. Yes. That's that's a very powerful thing for you to do in your song, I guess. Not I guess, it is. And then we get a choral interlude arranged by gospel singers Andre and Sandra Crouch. A choral interlude? Choral, like chorus. Oh. That's what, you know, this is. Just that angelic singing. So, in my opinion, I think... The, I wouldn't want to listen to the album version on my phone, <laughs> to be honest. I was like, I, it's cool that he's got all these orchestras and this chorus and stuff like that. But it's like, man, I just want to get to the action. <laughs> give, give me more movement in your music. Michael, give in to me. Give in to me. There we go. Here I, comes. I want this. So yeah, tell, tell us about what, Will You Be There? Because you were insistent that we talk about this song. And not talk about Free Willy, but it did it anyway. I told you twice you said you wouldn't do it. That means we don't have to talk about Free Willy ever again on this podcast. That is the promise you made to me, unbeknownst to you. Um, I wanted this to be on the one that one of the ones that we talk about because I think lyrically it's like evocative. And not like evocative in a way like oh it's surprising it hits you like i didn't expect to like feel something like because it's it's very obvious like he's talking about like some serious kind of things yeah 
Uh, and you want to sing it like almost immediately. Uh, but like the fourth verse, uh, which I, I feel like is when he really like, for lack of a better word, drops the beat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he hits he hits the notes with a little more fervor. He like sings that mess from his chest. Um, but they told me I was about to do a man should be faithful and walk when not able and fight till the end. But I'm only human. I'm only human. I'm only human. But I think that like this is the reason I want to talk about it because it's so because that you feel more than anything else, like because that's where he really pushes it. But when you stop and you look back at what he just the three preceding verses are him like legit begging for comfort yeah he's saying hold me so that i can be your friend carry me like i'm your brother love me like a mother and then he's saying i'm weary i'm tired tell me you will hold me tell me if i'm wrong you will you will hold me to that and then it goes like but they told me this isn't for me they told me that a man should walk even when he's not able to. Mm. They told me that I need to fight to the end, but I'm only human. And you go back. I need to be held. I need to be the, the like. So like, I, that's when you. I was like, why wouldn't you want to talk about this song? The song says so much about like what we put, what society puts on us yeah. in like the frame that we're supposed to be. Right, like the frame of you as a man. You need to be leading this marriage. You need to be leading this family. You need to like be making this the the what society says to me as like a black woman that I need to be strong, that I need to be able to like handle whatever comes at me, and like this kind of thing where it's just like, but that cry, like that's why it's the strongest thing. Where I say he sings that mess from his chest, and yeah. like I can't help but to do either when I read it. That's why I was like I was gonna read them, but it just made me want to sing because it's like ah. And then right after he says that, it's like everyone's taking control of me. Seems like the world has a role for me. I'm so confused. Will you show me that you'll be there and care enough to bear me? You know, like yep. ugh, like everything about the song is just like and that literally like that's the song. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you, you know, like, it's not a like, oh, we're easing into this. It's a, like, no, like, immediately hold me like the River Jordan. Like, it's just a, a, what is the word I'm looking at? A predilection. That's not what it is. Like, a, a call. It's it's a uh, provocation. Yeah. I, I just, it's, ugh. And I think the the power of this song is only helped by the the gospel yeah. sound of it. So mm-hmm. let me let me get to that point where it just like explodes yeah. and you're just like, "Yes! <laughs> Michael, I agree with you." build and build yeah. and build and build it's very very gospel it's a voice it's, crack for me it's so powerful and uh it just yeah like you can't help but just be like moved moved yeah i, I think that's totally fair um so the song ends uh it, the album version ends with a, a very emotional poem by Michael. Did you get those lyrics? Or? Uh yeah. In uh, my trials and tribulations. Yeah, so let's let's skip over there to when Michael says his little poem. In our darkest hour. In my deepest despair. We still care. 
be there in my trials and my trials. And I, I, I want to believe that he's really like choking up reading this. And frustrations in my violence, in my turbulence, through my fear and my confessions, in my anguish. wipe your face michael (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's 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 an emotional song it's a powerful song Mm. um he's 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 throwing a lot in there it's a good song it's a good song i think even like um the parts that we may not always listen to right where there's so much it's very gospelly and then where he's like just there's a lot going on yeah um i just like highlighted the parts that were repeated but while uh by the gospel, by the choir. Yeah. Um, hold me, lay your head lowly, softly then boldly, boldly carry me there. Lead me, love me and feed me, kiss me and free me. I will feel blessed. Save me, heal me and bathe me, heal me and bathe me. Softly you'll say to me, I will be there. It's just the whole thing. The whole thing? The whole thing is like oh, a mood you don't want to be in. <laughs> Well, after that, now <laughs> you we, chose this order. I did, but now we get to talk about uh, something that uh, we can get. We we could both be critical of. So here's the: I insisted that we talk about the next song, and that you didn't. You were against it. Yeah, you didn't want to. I don't have anything to say about this song. I want you to explain why you don't like this song because I also don't like this song all that much. And that song is "Black or White." <laughs> So, this is not one of my favorite Michael Jackson songs. Like, of all of the hits, right? This is probably my least favorite. He had a lot of hits. Something's got to be the least. Do you agree? Do you like this song at all? It's it's catchy. It's fine. I'm going to sing it if it's on. But I just have nothing to say about it. Okay, so this song was co-written and produced by Bill Bottrell. Bottrell? Uh, who was previously forced out of production of Bad by Quincy Jones. But Jackson brought him back for Dangerous because he was known as the, quote, rock guy. Mm. So you hear this, it's guitar driven, right? They got mm-hmm. the guitar riff and it's it's definitely not exactly a, an R&B song, right? It has a little bit of rock, but I'm like, the thing I don't like about this song is it's it's too lukewarm. It's not R&B enough and it's not rock enough. It's too much in the middle. Mm-hmm. So it just sounds kind of dry, mm-hmm. boring. By the numbers? By the numbers. Mm. And yes, it's very catchy. And this was the only number one hit from Dangerous. That is stupid. So that, to me, is like more of a, uh indictment on popular music in general. <laughs> like the, consu- the, 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 the mainstream consumers. Because mm-hmm. they flocked to this pretty generic pop song. Yeah. When and there were other songs on the... Exactly. Like... 
Same with Beat It, right? Where it was like a crossover hit, right? Like mm-hmm. the rock, the rock fans they got in on that. The R and B fans they got in on that. The pop fans they got in on that. I feel like Michael Jackson was trying to do the exact same thing here with black or white. Mm-hmm. He was trying to reach all of the audiences, and it worked. Yeah, but I want to be cynical about it because it's such a lame song to get behind. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Musically, it is not interesting to me right. at all. And unfortunately, it, the, the the audiences lapped it up. Yeah. And then another thing this song did was it introduced hip-hop. Like, hip-hop. So yeah, there, there was rap in um, other songs on Dangerous. Jam, for example. Jam! <laughs> Featured... Uh, mm. Hip-hop-hopotamus. Heavy D from uh, uh, Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. I hope I... Or was it Heavy D and the Boys? I don't know. Google it. Google it. I don't want to get that wrong. Huh? Oh, excuse me, but you'll let me get the Mon thing wrong? I, I'll, <laughs> I'll cut it out. Yeah, it, it features... Uh, so Jam features a rap by Heavy D of Heavy D and the Boys. Uh, but it's The Boys? This song also has a rap, but the rap is fully performed by... Uh, Macaulay Culkin. No. <laughs> In the video, it is... <laughs> no, Bill Patrell, the producer, who is a white man. And this rap is so lame <laughs> to me. <laughs> Not gonna spend my life being a color. Protection, the gang's nations, causing grief in human relations. It's a turf war on a global scale. I'd rather hear both sides of the tale. See, it's not about races, just places, faces. Where your blood comes from is where your space is. I've seen the bright get dull. I'm not gonna spend my life being a color. So it's like not bad. But it's, like, so not exceptional at all as a rap song. It has no oomph. Yeah. It has no, um... It's, like, barely a flow, right? Like, I feel nothing from that. I'm Um, not gonna spend my life being a color. I don't know. Like, with with Heavy D, like, you could feel it. Yeah. He's getting into it. Jam. This guy is just, like... I don't know. It it just felt like he was doing it by the numbers. (laughs) Felt flat. It felt flat. And, uh... I think it's cool that Michael was exploring other genres, and I like that he wanted to bring hip-hop in, mm-hmm. especially in a more rock-oriented song. He was trying to merge that black or white theme, right? Rock is generally considered like a white, you know, g- predominantly white genre mm-hmm. of music, even though it's blues and black. Right, and, right, right. You know, then obviously hip-hop being very much a, at this time, you know, black, right? Uh, predominantly black audiences like hip-hop. You merge them together, you get that, but... The problem is, it's just like such a lame rap, <laughs> and it's like, do you agree? The, the like even the lyrics of that rap, right? Like, what's <laughs> what is it? Uh, just that last part. I'm not going to spend my life being a color. Yeah, like it just seems too on the nose. Mm-hmm. Does this does this seem lazy to you? Uh, yeah, I guess I think like he has better songs that are about race and that are about um the issues in the world and when you're really reading these lyrics it's it it's the thing is it it's if you talk about my baby if you're talking about my baby it don't matter if you're black or white is it really the it sounds more like if you're talking crap about the person that i'm dating i don't care if you're black or white i'm gonna hate you (laughs) that's what it sounds like but then he also says things like you if can you be my. Be, you can be my brother. Don't matter if you're black or white. Yeah, but that it says once the rest sounds like I'm gonna hate you. Like you know, like it's just the whole thing just feels like okay. What are you talking about? There is a part where it's uh, I'm not scared. 
Uh, I'm tired of this devil. I'm tired of this stuff. I'm tired of this business. Uh, so when the going gets rough, I'm not scared. I ain't scared of your brother. I ain't scared of no sheets. I ain't scared of nobody. Girl, when the going gets mean and then the rap. So it should, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily talk about like love and equality and da da da. Like it has a line saying like, I'm tired of all this stuff, which cool. He does it better in other songs. The song is very lackluster. I have nothing to say about the song. He's he's not making a compelling argument about anything. And the only thing that I'm drawing from it is like, you could be my brother. It don't matter if you're black or or white. Right. That, that's the line I'm focusing on. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess maybe the harm being that he's really not expressing himself very well in this song i yeah i don't think he's expressing i or if he is i don't know what he's trying to express other than catchy rock song fair enough um i also want to talk about the music video Mm -hmm. now i could have talked about freaking um who is it which has a music video directed by david fincher or we could have talked about very confusing or we could have talked about uh the song given to me which is more of another rock type uh, music video, not unlike Dirty Diana. I was gonna say that uh, "Give In to Me" felt more in line with uh, Garden of Eden. That was the music video that we watched. Yeah, just because I mean, obviously they're different because one is like just a one shot thing. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. Or uh, we could have talked about "In the Closet," where Michael is begging for sex. But I want to talk about Black and White's music video because. It is unrestrained Michael, and someone needed to rein him in. It's oh, yeah. too much. Quincy was gone. Quincy was gone. My, no one told him no. And this music video is a mess. It has like 40 ideas, and they all got the, re- the green light. So the music video starts, and we get like this little skit of young Macaulay Culkin uh, dancing and listening to rock music in his in his room and his dad walks up and says turn that crap off I thought I told you to turn that thing off it is too late and it's too loud but dad this is the best part you are wasting your time with this garbage now go to bed okay and uh, Macaulay's okay. like, <laughs> Macaulay decides, okay, I'm going to shred my guitar and blow my dad to Africa. That is what he decides. And so if we're going to, you know, so if the concept of the album is young Macaulay Culkin is... The it, album, the music video. The music video. The, the, the concept of the music video is young Macaulay Culkin is going to rebel against his father because he just wants to rock. Mm-hmm. It's the freaking... I just want to rock video from Twisted Sister. Um, and then if Michael's just out there dancing to uh, dancing with Macaulay on his doorstep or whatever, it would have been a fun little music video, mm-hmm. right? But that's not where it goes. Where no. does it go? To Africa. To Africa. <laughs> and to every other country in the world. Every country you can think of. Michael is dancing with every type of people because I guess that's it the theme. It don't th- matter if you're black or white that's, or that's, other colors. That's the theme of the song, I guess, you know? So he's dancing with uh, indigenous peoples and... Um, Which was weird. He's... He, uh, Not him dancing with indigenous people, but, like, specifically, it's like, we're dancing... There's literally cowboys and native people running around shooting, and I was just like, mm, It's very... This feels not okay. In, a, in the same way he's, like... 
it's a he's providing a limited uh perspective on race in mm-hmm. his song lyrically he's also like presenting a pretty like juvenile depiction of like just race in the music video mm-hmm. it's like yeah it's fun and everyone's having a good time and celebrating and dancing together but also it's like just i don't know like it's surface level yeah it's aesthetic yeah and that's an issue and and again the song is already diverted away from its its premise. The concept was Macaulay Culkin at home. Now Michael's out there dancing with all these peoples, and that's the song. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't stop there. No. Then it goes into this special effects showcase where men and women of many different races, uh, people like Tyra Banks <laughs> and uh, Cree Summer. Same races. <laughs> Those are the names that you... The heads you recognize. Yeah. Well, you didn't recognize Cree Summers. Tess Harper, George Wentz, a bunch of different actors and actresses and models and dancers. All there. It, it's like them lip syncing the song. You know, it's black, it's white, mm-hmm. and their faces morph into each other. Yeah, and that could have been an interesting concept if on its own. But mm-hmm. the fact that all every single one of these concepts is explored in this video just makes this music video super messy and. Too much. Too many. And from there, the song ends, right? Mm-hmm. The song fades into view, and you're thinking, okay, that's the end of the music video. That's not the end. <laughs> then Michael goes fully overboard, and we get the panther dance. How old was Michael? Uh, Michael was, I think, in his late 20s. So, can you describe the panther dance? Um... He does a lot of shuffling and and tapping and and arm flinging and then goes to a car. He's like dancing in the street and tapping, like you said, and he like collapses in a puddle of water. <laughs> like, yeah, he like lands on his knees into a puddle of water and it gets everywhere. And he's got like, I do remember keep saying like, you have to get the pants are gonna chafe. And he starts, he jumps on a car. And starts gyrating on it. Like, mm-hmm. just full Michael Jackson dancing. And in true Michael Jackson fashion, he starts grabbing his crotch, yep. zipping and unzipping his pants. He was doing that. And then he starts defacing the car. He was dangerous. <laughs> he breaks windows. He starts throwing, like, bricks into houses and stuff like that. Now, this whole Panther Dance segment was considered too hot for television. True hot. So here's my question. Before I get into my my point about this is overboard. What about that video? What about the Panther Dance was more inappropriate to you? Was it all of the crotch uh, rubbing? Yeah, it was his dancing. Not not the defacing of property. Right. I agree. I think it was more sexual content than violence. But Mm -hmm. apparently people cited both as inappropriate. And (laughs) the, the director of the music video thought, okay... How do we make it less violent? We won't cut him dancing. That's not the issue. <laughs> it's the violence. So it's what should violence. we do? Every window he breaks will digitally add fake graffiti onto the onto the the, the windows. So he's smashing hatred. Yeah, all like they're they superimposed hate speech graffiti on all of the windows that he smashes. So mm-hmm. Michael is being positive by breaking these windows. <laughs> But I feel like that wasn't a problem that needed to be fixed. Yeah. What needed to be fixed was all of the, the, the zipping and... The gyrating. And the crotching. The crotching. 
But anyway, and then Michael transforms into a, a panther and, and leaves. That's but the true violence. My point is, this is all in one video. Mm-hmm. Everything from Macaulay Culkin to dancing with you know people from around the world to face morphs to panther morphs to panther dance to smashing windows. Yeah. It's too much. It's a lot. I can't think of another music video that takes this many turns. I feel like my chem had one. <laughs> I feel like this is the point. Like, yeah, this is when the music video industry thought we've gone too far. <laughs> we've told Michael yes too much. It's time to tell him no. It's it, it's gone too far. We need to rein him in, and we need to rein everybody in. Because mm-hmm. I can't think of any musical acts. Maybe Madonna. Even like in the late nineties with with Britney Spears, I don't think they took this many turns. Yeah. And no. and like Beyonce has big music projects, but like she's focused. Yeah. <laughs> Michael had too many ideas. Swatting swatting the ideas away. He was catching too many ideas. Yeah. I think honestly, like, the Panther Dance should have just been its own video. Just a standalone. Sort of like um what was the one where he's like scoping that girl out in for the Pretty bad young PYT? No, that's not PYT. Uh the way you make me feel That's the one. Uh, you know, that was, it was a similar set and it's just him, you know, dancing with a, yeah. trying to get a girl's attention. I feel like the Panther dance could have gone with Dangerous. Yeah. Because he was dangerous. Either way, I'm just saying. Dangerous doesn't have a music video. I just want to complain. Mm-hmm. And here's the icing on the cake. That's not the end of the video. <laughs> There's one more thing that happens at the very end. Do you remember what it is? After yeah. Michael has turned into a Panther and left. Uh-uh. I did not remember. It was uh... Bart Simpson and Homer Simpson of The Simpsons. They show up. Of Simpsons fame. The The Simpsons had been on the air for two years, and apparently Michael Jackson loved Bart Simpson. <laughs> he had written a song for Bart called Do the Bart Man one year before this video came out. Oh, so gosh. The Simpsons and Michael Jackson were like combined. <laughs> Michael Jackson appeared in The Simpsons at some point. Michael, too much. Too much. It's it just, ju- just too much. <laughs> Honestly, it feels the same as Speed Demon to me. Speed Demon. <laughs> that same same video. Same video. Speed too- Demon was even more conservative than this. It's still too many things. Too many movements. Too many old bunch of stuff. So I feel like they, they're the same. <laughs> it's like ADHD. Michael needed to be stopped. He was a menace. <laughs> he was a menace. Eh, just get his own YouTube. Do whatever he wants. Uh, sorry, almost I'm, whatever. Anyway, I just wanted to complain a bunch. I wanted to say, hey, you know, some of these hits, they shouldn't be. Yeah. But we're gonna close out with a song about Michael being angry. Yeah. Frustrated. Yeah. And that song is called "Why You Want to Trip on Me." Yeah. <laughs> That is not Slash, by the way. Mm-mm. He was saying, give in to me. So this right here is the new Jack Swing sound. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop, like hip-hop beats... With the R&B, uh, like sensibility, the R&B melodies. Michael, Michael will start singing here in a second, but already a better song. 
He does like his entrances, but he's a dancer, so. Yeah. So it's really interesting because it it doesn't actually get to the chorus for a while. <laughs> so let's talk about the the lyrics then. Yeah, I think like even uh, you can feel in how he's singing the words. I was gonna say presenting the words. Uh, he sounds angry. <laughs> yeah, frustrated. He sounds like frustrated, irritated. This is different. it's much more raw than the other stuff we've listened to today. Yeah. And I'm like, I, this Michael, I believe. Yeah. I'm a little disingenuous about the Michael of black or white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, it, like, and it's the things, right? Like, he he's, I think, like, the thing that he does differently in here is he doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time on one issue, which, right, like, we've seen him do with, like, Man in the Mirror, with Will You Be, it's just, like, he has the ability to sit and, like, really pull out an issue. Yes. But here he's... The issue is, right, like, um, I don't want to say consumerism, but <laughs> it is a little bit. Like, the uh, media presence and media focus being on a person rather than all the different issues in the, issues world. In the world, right? Like, that's all. And and it's just listing, like, all the different things, right? Like I, the, I have the list. Yeah, listed same. all of them. Go ahead. Uh, so we got World Hunger. Strong diseases with strange diseases with no cure, so AIDS, gang violence and bloodshed on the street, homeless people with no food to eat, drug addiction, streetwalkers walking into darkness, so much corruption and police brutality. And I'm sure I missed some. Yeah, illiteracy. Yeah. He literally has illiteracy. He says, Teachers who don't want to teach, but I will uh, amend that to uh, schools that get shot up. Like, you know, there's, but it is all the things that you said. He's just like, we've got so many more problems. We've got more problems than we'll ever need. And you're worried about what I do in my free time. Yeah. It got, I think you said, did you say, you said drug addiction and she said corruption. Yep. Yeah. So much corruption. So much corruption. And he's just like, okay. So I'm listing, he listed that for like legitimately 30 lines, 30 lines of things that are like all of these problems. And then the chorus goes, why you got a trip on me? Why? Why me? We have so many issues. Why are you focused on the fact that I have a Ferris wheel in my backyard? Right. And I think this is a, a continuation of the issues he talked about with um, uh, leave me alone yeah. from bad, right? It's like, oh, just leave me alone. You focus too much on the tabloids and, yeah. and, and my, my personal life and stuff like that. But this one, it's like, now he's accusing them. Yeah. Like, no more t- no more games for Michael. No more yeah. tug-and-cheek stuff. Michael's mad. Yeah. And he's like, why do you want to trip on me? Look around you. Right, exactly. Let's hear that chorus. Can I just say, Justin Timberlake, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, they they were just trying to be Michael. They were. This (laughs) just sounds like that. Yeah. And. That just sounds like this. Yes. Yes. 
they Michael was on an island of his own. This was like Michael's sound mm-hmm. for a few years, and then by the late nineties, everyone was like, "Oh wow, I can swing that new jack." I'm just gonna do that. <laughs> so I think that's interesting that Michael uh, influenced so much, and we don't even like yeah. give him credit for. It. At least I don't. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. The, Michael had things to say in yeah. this song. Uh, I was gonna. I was gonna say like. We talked about how uh, Will You Be There is like a benediction. And this is very much like you say, is like accusatory, but also just like, hi- I don't know, like trying to highlight, right? Like, yeah. what is wrong with the world today? And that it's not, or, or that day, but still today, <laughs> that, and it's not like just like the, the, what's wrong with the world isn't just like all this list of things. It's like, the focus of the general public. Right. Michael's frustrated at all those things. Yeah. He's written songs about being frustrated with the state of the world. Yeah. And, and, and you know, wanting compassion and yeah. all that stuff. But in this song, he's not so much frustrated with those things. He's frustrated that no one cares. Yeah. Or it seems like the media isn't paying attention mm-hmm. or doesn't care and so on and so on. I do have to bring something up. Go. Because I believe Michael. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm on Michael's side with this song, right? Mm-hmm. But- However... <laughs> There are certain members of the public sphere, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, certain public figures that will take the same stance that Michael is taking here, mm-hmm. but in bad faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. We call that whataboutism, mm-hmm. right? There are certain people when criticized, right? And prob- like Michael, Michael was, I-, I don't think, I think people criticized him in bad faith. I don't think he deserved some of the criticism, especially like, who cares what he did in his free time, right? Like, as long as it wasn't um, untoward and appropriate. But right. sometimes public figures do need to be taken to task for what they say and do. Yeah. Right? If there is corruption going on or if someone is a, uh, a liar, frequent liar, <laughs> um, they need to be taken to task. Yeah. Unfortunately, a common weapon used by such people is the whataboutism, right? Mm. So it's like... Hey, you lied about this. Or, hey, you are taking advantage or exploiting people. Mm-hmm. Well, what about them? Yeah. Hi, media, how come you don't pay attention to this? Why is it only a problem for me? You know? Yeah. And it's like cl- clearly in bad faith. And I just want to point that out that I don't believe Michael is doing that. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that that is a thing that happens. That is a fallacy that happens. Yeah. No, you're yeah. right. Yep. Which, like, sucks <laughs> i suck. think I, I think it's like yeah we're getting to that too but right now i'm standing in front of you so to talk about this I, I just think the discourse can get so muddled and tangled up mm-hmm. yeah where two people can make the exact same argument and one person could be valid and one person can't yeah and i think honestly like even this song like shines a spotlight on that you know like Michael is trying to expose the media for their practices, but at the same time, he's exposing people who try, you know, who shine the spotlight back on the media in a in a bad actory way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know he didn't mean to do that, but I feel like that's just something that come to mind when I hear this song. I get that, which I think is I, I think is interesting because for me, it like the focus for me is like all of the things, like yeah, yeah, all of those things are happening like why aren't we more indignant i think that's what it is i was gonna say this this reeks of indignation yes like in a good way it's a oh yeah absolutely (laughs) like i 
that's why I connect with this. That's mm-hmm. why I am on Michael's side because I see the genuineness yeah. in his, you know, indignation. Yeah. Um, not so much in other people yeah. with their whataboutisms, but with this song, it's strong, it's pointed, it's effective. Yeah, it's what we're here for. And it's not black and white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, right? Like, because you can feel stuff happening. Like, you can feel emotion from this, and you can see, like, where it's going. And it it's weird because it's not like, again, right? Like, the focus isn't on one thing, which black and white is supposed to be, I suppose. Maybe it isn't. Maybe we're just, like, saying it should have a focus because it should it's have. all black or white. But um, it's like whatever, you know. Maybe you don't know. It's it's a good song. It, it is a really good song. Yeah. And um, I, I, you were I, almost gonna not have us do it. I was like, why wouldn't you want to talk about this one? You're right. It, it, it honestly, it's because it's a song that I, I that most people don't think about when they think about this album. You know, mm. it's not one of the hits, but it should be. Yeah, I would have rather this be a hit than Black or White. Right. So I'm glad we talked about this. Me too. We could have talked about Give In to Me, but and we, we will. wanted to talk about. And hey, we're going to close out with Give In To Me. Yeah, you're going, I give you that. Why couldn't we close out with Black and White? Because it sucks. <laughs> hey, okay, so that's Dangerous. <laughs> Did you? Would you recommend Dangerous? Yeah. I would also recommend Dangerous. It is, if you are a Michael Jackson fan, and we have played songs that you have never heard before, or don't hear often, I recommend you listen to all of Dangerous, because it Do is it. excellent. Like, we've only scratched the surface. I feel like the album goes in so many directions, but it's just so strong. Yeah. Um, I Except was gonna, for Jam. Jam's, Jam's a good opener. <laughs> jam gets you in the mood. Nah. I was like, I think... Jam, yeah. Jam gets you in the mood. Just don't don't be there for lyrics. The thing about Dangerous is that it works as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think the art of the album is organizing a group of songs that build on each other. Yes, tracklisting is the most important thing when it comes to music. Track album. order, Bleh. mega important. And I feel like Dangerous has almost a perfect order of its mm-hmm. songs it has the perfect rise and fall yeah that an album should have and i think as a whole it is excellent yeah it is better than the sum of its parts yeah i concur i uh, greatly recommend it <laughs> <laughs> but how did the how did uh the the uh how did the public see dangerous i don't know how did you do it dangerous Unsurprisingly, debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard charts. Wow. And in 13 other countries. Wow. It was the best-selling album, Worldwide, of 1992. Wow. <laughs> um, the album produced four singles that reached the top ten of the Billboard Hot 100, including Remember the Time. Yeah. In the Closet. Yeah. Will You Be There? Yeah. And the number one single, Black or White. Why well, was In the Closet on that list? That song's so weird. Keep it in the closet. That's another song of Michael uh, begging for sex. In the closet. In the, Michael's the only man who can write a song called In the Closet and have it be unapologetically about heterosexual love. Yeah. And have it not be questioned. It is yeah. a song about heterosexual love, but it's called In the Closet. Yes. That being said, he does not look like he is heterosexually in love with the actress in that yeah. music video. Um. Dangerous is currently the 14th best-selling album of all time. Oh, wow. Yep. Currently. Sold a lot. <laughs> Go buy it, guys. Uh, Rolling Stone wrote that Jackson was, quote, a man, no longer a man-child, confronting his well-publicized demons and achieving transcendence through performance. 
And I agree. I think the subject matter of this album are more mature than many of the things he wrote about on Thriller and on Bad. Annie, are you okay? Not even in a superficial way. Yeah. Like, with some of the songs on Bad, we were like, like Dirty Diana. It's like, Mm -hmm. I didn't believe Michael Jackson had experienced those things. (laughs) But on Dangerous, I feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Michael. It's raw. It's, uh... It's 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 raw, it's emotional, it's genuine. Yeah. The Village Voice said, while they felt Jackson was too insistent with the, quote, faith, hope, and charity message songs, they applauded the production's, quote, abrasively unpredictable rhythms and the, quote, sex and romance songs, calling them the most plausible of Jackson's career. What? I guess they were saying that his sex and romance songs sounded real, as opposed to prior albums where it didn't sound as you know because it's like i don't believe michael is a sexual being there this album like yeah i think michael's actually starting to really explore that stuff stop using the word explore with michael jackson i don't like it uh the new york (laughs) the new york times called it jackson's quote least confident solo album panning the quote dogmatically ordinary lyrics of the love songs and writing that quote they seem based on demographic research rather than experience or imagination. So they don't quite see it as uh, a genuine sentiment from Michael. Like the love songs specifically? That's what they that's okay. what they they pointed out, but I would actually say like a song like that description is spot on for black or white. Mhm. To me that seems like a song built in a factory. Yeah. To sell as opposed to actually say something meaningful. Right. And I think we both agreed on yeah. that. Yeah. And Dangerous received four Grammy Award nominations, including Best Pop Vocal Performance for Black or White, and Best R&B Vocal Performance and Best R&B Song for Jam, uh, mm-hmm. with Teddy Riley and Bruce Sweden, the producers, winning Best Engineered Album, Non-Classical. Nice. Non-Classical. And uh, Jackson actually won a Grammy Legend Award at that same ceremony. Oh, he's a legend. Yeah. And what is the legacy of Michael Jackson's Dangerous over the years, many have come to recognize Dangerous as Michael Jackson's greatest artistic achievement. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think most more and more people are starting to realize, no, man. It's good. Dangerous is good. In 2018, The Guardian said, quote, Returning to Dangerous now, without the hype or biases that accompanied the release in the early 90s, one gets a clearer sense of its significance. It surveyed the cultural scene and the eternal and the internal anguish of its creator in compelling ways. The contemporary music scene is certainly far more indebted to Dangerous as a significant factor to the transformation of black music. Mm. I was, like, a lot of people look back on Dangerous and call it, like, Michael Jackson's blackest album. Maybe, like, you Mm. could say that about his songs from the 70s, Mm -hmm. but, like, Michael was embracing his blackness with Dangerous, according to some critics. Okay, were these critics white? Probably. <laughs> okay. But I I can understand that criticism or that... that uh, Comment? What's the word I'm looking for? That assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, because he is exploring more like, you know, black genres, New Jack Swing, hip hop. Mm-hmm. He's embracing those things. Okay. So I, I, I can see that. The National Association of Recording Merchandisers, in conjunction with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, ranked Dangerous at number 115 on its list of the definitive 200 albums of all time, uh, and it ranked number 43 on Billboard's list of the greatest of all time R&B hip-hop albums. So, good job, Michael. Good job, Michael. And where did Michael Jackson go from here? Well, 
He founded the Heal the World Foundation in 1992. Uh, the charity brought un- underprivileged children to Jackson's Ranch to uh, use his theme park rides. Cool. And he sent millions of dollars around the globe to help children threatened by war, poverty, and disease. Nice. So, so cool. He was definitely addressing the issues he brought up in Be- those songs. And being a philanthropist. Yep. He being a Tony Stark, billionaire philanthropist, millionaire yep. philanthropist. Iron Man. <laughs> And in 1993, Jackson performed at the Super Bowl halftime show in Pasadena, California. Hey, I've been there. It was the first Super Bowl whose halftime performance drew a greater audience figure than the game itself. That makes sense. More more people tuned in to watch Michael than the big game. That's literally jokes that people like K-pop stands make. They're like, oh, when BTS does the Super Bowl or the big game... People are going to be confused because there's going to be people that are not paying attention to the game and are only there for the halftime show. Yep. And I was like, yep, yeah, that makes sense that Michael did that first. That's Michael. Hey, that's the end of our show because as we will talk again about Guns N' Roses, we will talk again about Michael Jackson. Is it the same year again? No, it okay. won't be the same year again. <laughs> I was like, I can't remember. This is the last head-to-head competition between Guns N' Roses and Michael Jackson. This is round two, the final and, round. And Who won? The- Michael. Michael won. Michael won. <laughs> no question. Absolutely not. Yeah, guns. Uh, I love you, but yeah, Michael. Michael's dangerous. I, I, it set the bar for J- Jess's music for sure. And I don't, I don't know if any other albums are going to surpass that bar. For in my, my opinion, yes. Um, all my albums are great. So not as on. not as great as Dangerous. Um, Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here with that. <laughs> um. So, um, as with all of our music episodes, we've decided which one is better. But albums can't be assessed on their music alone. No, we must look at the album covers. So I have them both up here. Why you gonna trip on me? So what you're looking at now is the Use Your Illusion 1 album cover. Can you describe it to our listeners, please? It looks like a Renaissance painting. It is a Renaissance painting. How about that? <laughs> yeah, it looks like a Renaissance painting with uh like but the like a photograph of a painting um that was then saturated. The color was pulled out and saturated, but there's one character that is like in black and white. So it's like a person in red and gold uh leaning against something with a person in the f- that's in the background. In the foreground, there is a person sitting with a leg cross writing in a book, and they are in black and white. They look more like a statue. They're like, highlighted. They're highlighted. and they're, They are highlighted with red, but like they are the more prominent figure. And along the side, in slide rolls, says, Lose, use your exclusion one. <laughs> Something like that. So the both Use Your Illusion albums are essentially the same. They just have different colors. Use Your Illusion 1 is red and yellow, like you said, and uh, Use Your Illusion 2 is blue and kind of like purple. It's a weird color combination. Yeah, um, so both album covers were the work of Estonian-American artist Mark Kostabi. Kostabi. They're basically repurposed details from Raphael's The School of Athens painting from the Renaissance. So if you've actually seen The School of Athens, this is big, like, mural-type painting mm-hmm. with, like different philosophers of the age like all meeting in one place to like hear someone speak right so you could see right. you know aristotle and all these other different philosophers 
all in one place. These two characters are actually unidentified. Oh. I guess historians don't know who these two characters are, right? So there's the one character who's leaning against a, a column, I guess, mm-hmm. with their head in their arm. And, uh, you know, if you just kind of passively look at it, it looks like he's, like, eating something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I can tell now that he's leaning on his arm. But yeah. I, always, I always thought that he was, like, eating, like, uh, like a like... lump. <laughs> I don't know. It's his arm. Also, it's weird that they can't identify them. Like, that's obviously Matt and Dizzy. <laughs> Of Guns N' Roses. They yeah. were they were there at the they School of They were there. Athens. They are time travelers. So um, I've heard that, like, especially in advertising, like, certain colors will create different, um, like, emotions within yeah. people, you know? Um, obviously, things like McDonald's, they have red and yellow, right? Um, I've also heard, though, that red and yellow, that combination can also create unease mm-hmm. in viewers. This album brings me unease. Unease. It's... It's mostly the colors. Yeah. It's just unpleasant to look at to me. Yeah. It makes me sick. <laughs> to my stomach. I mean, I find it better than... Uh, Michael? Prob- no, probably the blue and purple. That sounds like a weird combination. I don't know. That one is more pleasing to my eye just because blue and purple are more of a... Cool color. Yeah. This one's too loud. It's too, it's too much. No, no, no. It's too warm. You don't like the heat. But talk about busy and, and clutter. Let's, let's talk yeah, about Michael. Michael Jackson's is very busy and cluttered. Can you, what, do you, what are we looking at? Oh my, it's, it's like this circus tableau. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like the entrance to a circus. And uh, you see like, like carnival masks and uh, just too many details. Too much. I, I don't know what I'm looking at. And There's a dog in a uh, royal robe and crown. There is a little girl holding the skull of a large beast. There is a what looks like an Alice in Wonderland dark ride. <laughs> it's it's so cluttered and busy. There's just so much going on. And it's I guess it's supposed to be the outside of a circus or something. And at the very top is concealed by like a mask are Michael Jackson's eyes. It is his eyes. It's very pretty ass. So this cover was painted by American artist Mark Ryden. It is ugly. <laughs> it's it too much. It does, in fact, have a lot going on. Uh, I don't know if I can decide which one I like better. Bubbles I, is at the top. Bubbles is up there. And down at the bottom is uh, P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus. Ooh, just for that, <laughs> Guns N' Roses takes it. <sighs> I think I'm going to give it to Guns N' Roses because it's a little cleaner. Yeah. I don't like it, but yeah, Michael's is too much. I actually find Guns N' Roses is more interesting just because of the the use of the Renaissance painting. I, the, I, I hear that. Yeah. I understand that. So that's that. Just wins. Woo! For uh, the year. Wins just the album. Just always wins. I win the album cover, though. Yeah, you can have that. <laughs> Gotta give him, kids, you gotta remember to give your partner some pennies so that you can win all the time. <laughs> so what's next on our agenda um, as we wrap up? Would you up? like to talk about Runners Up? I would. Are you sure you would like to? Yes, because 1991 was one of the best years in music, and I'm kind of upset we had to talk about Guns N' Roses when there were so many other great albums that year. But Guns N' Roses is your favorite band. I, I love Guns N' Roses, my favorite band, but man, <laughs> there were a lot of... Really interesting, great albums, especially because grunge 
had just hit the mainstream. Mm, do you like me some grunge? I like grunge, and uh, there were some great grunge albums that I would have liked to talk about. Well, I don't know if this is grunge, but Temple of the Dogs, Temple of the Dog. Yep, that is uh, the the union of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden coming together. Temple of the Dog, excellent album. Talking about Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam 10. Excellent album. Talking about Soundgarden, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. Bad Motorfinger's a great album. All That's like... <laughs> All in 1991, <laughs> three of the best grunge albums of all time, right there for you. Um, and just to bring it back to your rock roots, we do have Guns N' Roses, Usually Illusion 2. Yep. And Rush's Roll the Bones. Rush's Roll the Bones has a really bad white rap, too. <laughs> Talk about black or white. This <laughs> Roll the Bones is very silly. I just look down and I can see what our, our TV shows are for this year. Ooh. But those are all your runners up. What do you got? I've got two runners up. Metallica's Metallica. The Black Album. Oh. No, no, it, it's, oh, it, yeah. it's, it's Metallica, it's but it's the Black Album. It's right. the one with Enter Sandman on it. Yes, I think it's, that's the only reason that, that it's on this list. There you L- go. Michael Jackson won by landslides. And yes. Nirvana's Nevermind. Hey, another grunge super hit. <laughs> Mega hit. So, yeah, big b- big year for grunge, and we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about grunge at all. <laughs> Sorry, folks. But if you want to hear us have a grunge uh, a grunge episode, let us know. We won't do it. Not or, for you. Or kids. hey, <laughs> sh- give us a shout out on Twitter and tell us what your favorite grunge album of 1991 was. Oh yeah, let us know. Speaking of Twitter, is, is it time for plugs? It is time for plugs, sir. So you can uh, speaking of Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter at Media Mate Show, and you can follow us on Instagram at Media Mate Show. <coughs> we put up polls, we put up pictures, we put up videos, we have fun. Fun, guys. We have an ongoing uh, scoreboard that we update frequently. Don't worry. I'm winning. Uh, <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on YouTube at uh, Taming Twelve. Taming Tales. Taming Tales on YouTube. I put up stories and vlogs and drawings. The drawings aren't good, but the stories and vlogs are. I mean, the vlogs are okay. <laughs> uh, and if you want to see my stuff, you can check me out on YouTube as well. I have a wrestling YouTube show called Keep Kayfabe. That's K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. Uh, if you like wrestling, check us out. I also write for a website called ZeldaDungeon.net. So if you like the video game series The Legend of Zelda, uh, you'll probably like some stuff there. Check us out. Um, and you can follow me personally at Rod the Master on Twitter. Yeah. That's the end of our show. So as we mentioned earlier, we're going to close out with the Michael Jackson song, Give In To Me, where the man straight up begs for sex. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we sing Give In To Me quite often. And, uh, we do. Are we begging for sex? Which is not that way. We're just, we're just you know, being silly. <laughs> it's usually me trying to hug you and you don't want to because you're tired. When he gets really sleepy, he's like, please don't touch me. And I'm like, give in to me. And he pushes me into the table. And who, does, who plays the guitar on Give In To Me? Buckethead. No. Slash of Guns N' Roses. <laughs> the man pulled double duty. He does all of the guitar in... In anything you've ever heard guitar in. <laughs> in Give In To Me. So yes it's the perfect song to end because it wraps up the whole show. Yeah. Guns N' Roses, Michael Jackson, brought together by Slash in Give In To Me. So with that, we will see you next time in our 1991 TV episode. Goodbye. Night, kids. Make sure to have a good nap, but, you know, not a coma. Daddy's a